Tonight, what goes on behind the closed doors of the Masonic Lodge? A 32nd degree Mason said the ritual was the authoritative source for all Masons. But what is the ritual for the first three degrees of Masonry? What does it teach? You will be introduced to the primary symbols in all Masonic lodges and watch how a candidate is received upon his being initiated into the entered apprentice degree of Masonry. How binding is the obligation taken by any candidate initiated into the first three degrees of Masonry? Tonight, you will find out. Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin, again. I guess this is another conspiracy deep dive episode, if you want to call it that. Even though I'm going to be telling you all factual history, going to be speculating very little, unlike my QAnon two-part episode. It seems like good timing to just talk about all this stuff, stuff that I've been interested in, stuff that Media Roots has talked about before, but the world is just getting so crazy and weird right now that why not? Why not talk about the Freemasonic history of the United States? Today, I just read an article on Popular Mechanics, which is typically considered a credible website. Well, actually, the New York Times ran with this also. The Popular Mechanics headline says, Pentagon has, quote, off-world vehicles not made on this earth. Unquote. Bombshell. The government once clandestine UFO program will reveal findings on unexplained materials and crashes. That's pretty wild. Uh, I don't know what the fuck's actually going on. Smells like some kind of psyop, maybe also. Why would they, you know, what function does this serve the government to release this stuff? I have no idea. But I'm already getting sidetracked. It's weird to see that pop up in mainstream news. So I suppose what I'm about to tell you today on this episode of Media Roots Radio is really not going to sound that wild or crazy or that strange, except maybe some parts of it. So yeah, let's get right into it, I guess. And just right off the top, I wanted to give an immense thank you to all of our new Patreon subscribers. There's been an incredible interest in Media Roots Radio recently. It's really exciting. I appeared on Office Hours uh, podcast with Tim Heidecker. Doug Pound and Vic Berger to discuss QAnon for three hours. I just recently appeared on the TrueAnon podcast, which was excellent. The people there are very open-minded about conspiracy stuff. Um, they understand the wavelength that I'm on about you know, trying to differentiate the crap from the good stuff. The American history of Freemasonry you know, people are interested in it now. I mean, there's definitely some other podcasts that I've seen about it now. One of our very first episodes of Media Roots Radio ever was about the history of Freemasonry in the United States. It mostly focused on the American Revolution, which I think 
at this point has kind of been beaten into the ground by people. So what I'd like to do on this episode is veer away from that being sort of the main anchor point of the Masonic history of the United States. I want to tell you a larger history that I think maybe will add some nuance and sort of more color to what your interpretation of Freemasonry already is. And I also want to try to give people a better understanding of the spirituality and sort of the occult belief system that Freemasons actually embody. Even if some of the Freemasons themselves who practice Freemasonry don't, their belief system comes out of a very specific era and time. Once you sort of understand it, it actually sort of connects to a lot of aspects of American culture, even, that'll start to make sense. Even about the way that we view ourselves as people. Freemasonry in the United States was very culturally influential, not just politically influential. But let me just explain really quickly why this is a subject that I feel that I'm knowledgeable enough to talk about and also give you some backstory on why it's something that fascinates me. So I grew up um, in a suburb in California called Pleasanton. I met a weird guy on the internet who we ended up later becoming best friends. And I'm not going to give his name on this podcast just for his own privacy, just out of respect for him. But he was involved in the beheading video that I made, uh, the fake beheading video, I should say, in case you're a new listener and you don't know about this fake beheading video that I made. I'll just give you a really quick overview of it. My now wife, my friend, and myself put together a hoax beheading video that we uploaded to the internet. And three months later, the news actually ran the video as if it was real. The FBI came to interrogate us. They never tried to actually slap us with any charges, but the media was outraged about it because the media had actually been tricked and ran with it as a real story until they realized that my friend, who stars in the video getting his head cut off, was still alive and it was fake. So just want to get that out of the way. This is the guy who was involved in that. Lori, my wife, Lori Kirchner, was also involved in that. But before we did that, that happened in 2004, um, I met this guy in high school. So I was already like, uh, I think I was like 23 in 2004. Jeez, wow, that was such a long time ago. Holy shit. I'm almost 40. Well, it's crazy to think about how long ago that was. Wow, time flies. Okay, so back to the story. Back to the, the story you're tuning in for. My friend and I... In high school, we just used to be into weird stuff. We would do like stunts on people or we would play hoaxes on people. We did a weird thing where my friend actually pretended to be an urban exploration expert, which means you actually like explore abandoned structures. And my friend wasn't an urban exploration expert at all, but he managed to convince a news team from LA to come up to our town when we were in high school still to essentially film us breaking into like the sewers and like abandoned buildings in UC Berkeley and stuff like that. We had no idea what we're doing. And we just like brought these news crews into the sewers and shit. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is really weird that we're just like trolling this news crew and we're, we have no idea what we're doing at all. Like, this is, this is dangerous. It was just a weird thing. My, my friend and I just used to do weird things like that all the time. Um, he also faked getting press passes to the E3 video game convention. 
we set up a bunch of fake interviews with video game executives that we never ended up using for anything. So we were sort of into just doing these strange things. And one of the things that we ended up later doing was infiltrating Masonic Lodge meetings and sneaking into Masonic Lodges. Now, not like trespassing or like breaking and entering or anything like that, but like when they would open their doors for public meetings or events, we would sort of find a way to sneak in there. But the whole reason I got even interested or why I thought this would be a funny prank or why I even cared about crashing a Masonic Lodge meeting at all when I was still in high school, like a senior in high school, is because my friend was actually part of this sort of hardcore Catholic sect called the Society of St. Pius X. They had a church in Los Gatos, Los Gatos, California. I remember we were driving somewhere one time and I had a cassette player in my car, you know, old, older car, still had a cassette deck. And he's like, I want to, I want you to listen to this tape of my priest from my church. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, why would I want to listen to that? I was like already really staunchly atheist. I thought him even being Catholic at all was silly. And then he put this tape in. I was like, sure, put it in. This priest started ranting about these people called the Freemasons and how he thinks it's a tragedy that that Catholic families all around the country, that Christian families all around the country are letting their children be raised with these Freemasonic, secular, irreligious icons like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln. And he went on this really long rant about how Freemasonry was, in his belief, a plot to destroy the church. And this is what the whole sermon was about on this tape. And I remember just thinking it was like so bizarre. I'd never, I've heard of Freemasonry before, but I didn't really, I had no idea that there were like, like religious complaints about it or that there was any conspiracies about it sort of taking over the church or running anything. You know, I knew about like New World Order conspiracies already, but the idea that like Freemasons, you know, I just thought of it almost like the Rotary Club or the Lions Club or something like that, or the Elks Lodge. So growing up with this guy in high school who became my, my best friend, he would tell me these like stories about Freemasons, you know, like Freemasonic conspiracy theories from a Catholic church perspective. And I remember just finding them very entertaining. I didn't believe in them or necessarily subscribe to them, but I remember just being like highly entertained by them. I forgot to mention an important part of the story. For some reason, I had always not liked Monty Python growing up. Like in high school, I used to actually be annoyed by it because all these band kids were into Holy Grail. I just remember I had this like dislike for the Holy Grail. They played it on Comedy Central when I was in high school and I didn't care for it. I thought that Monty Python was stupid. I sort of wrote it off. And one day my friend, my Mason-obsessed Catholic friend, said, hey, let's rent some Monty Python. Okay. Like an episode of the show, one of the movies. I don't want to watch the Holy Grail. I told him I refused to watch the Holy Grail because I had already seen parts of it on TV. I thought it sucked. So we went to my local Blockbuster video store. I have this vivid memory of my local Blockbuster. It had windows. It was a completely like windowed, like one of those modern looking stores where every side of it was a window. It had almost no like opaque walls to it. That's how I remember it looking. I'm sure it probably didn't actually look like that, but 
the videos on one side of the store where it caught most of the sunlight were totally sun bleached to the point where they only had like printer ink toner is like like cyan magenta and blue it looked like that was all that was left in these monty python vhs box covers that were sitting on the shelf and they had all of them in stock there none of them had been rented yet and they had life of brian they had meaning of life they had the holy grail and they had a bunch of best of vhs tapes of monty python's show so i remember telling my friend well i really didn't like the holy grail it sucked he was like, well, we should watch Life of Brian. You're going to really like this one if you don't like Holy Grail. I didn't trust him, so I made him get an episode of the show. And he's like, okay, well, you'll, you'll like this one. This is a good one. It was an episode called The Buzz Aldrin Show, I think was the name of it. We get back to my place. I was like, man, this movie, Life of Brian, is like two hours, something long. Like, this looks really long. I'm tired. Let's just throw in one of these sketches. He's like, let me show you a sketch where Monty Python makes fun of Freemasons. No way. I was like, there's not a sketch about Freemasons. So he puts on this sketch called the Architect Sketch, where it's John Cleese and Eric Idle of Monty Python trying to show their different architectural models to a board of investors for this architectural firm. And these people on this board are deciding which model they want to go with. John Cleese's model is a murder factory designed to murder the tenants of the building, like a slaughterhouse. And at the end of his rant, when he fails to impress the board, he goes on an angry rant against how hoity-toity and elitist they are. You excrement! You lousy, hypocritical, whining toadies! With your lousy colored TV sets and your Tony Jetson golf clubs and your bleeding Masonic handshakes, you wouldn't let me join with you, you black, boring bastards. Well, I wouldn't become a Freemason now if you went down on your lousy, stinking, polluted knees and begged me. Well, we're sorry you feel like that, but we uh, did want to go flat. Nice though the abattoir is. <laughs> Oh, the abattoir, that's not important. But if one of you could put in a word for me, I'd love to be a Freemason. Freemasonry opens doors. I mean, I was, I was a bit on edge just now, but, but if I was a Mason, I'd just sit at the back and not get in anyone's way. Thank you. I've got a second-hand apron. Thank you. <laughs> the sketch then degenerates into the voiceover coming on, saying, how to identify a Freemason. What other ways are there of recognising a Mason? It shows a bunch of masons with their aprons on, with their pants down and thumbs in their mouth, hopping like bunny rabbits down the street. And it shows two men with their pants legs pulled up, trying to shake hands in this really funny way where one of them is putting his hand between his legs and crouching on the ground to grab the other guy's hand. Let's have a look at that handshake again in slow motion. <laughs> and then it proceeds to go to a Terry Gilliam animation uh, that's based off of Graham Chapman with a Masonic apron on, naked, only wearing a Masonic apron and giant antlers, a banner across his chest that says, I am a Mason. Having once identified a Mason, immediate steps must be taken to isolate him from the general public. <laughs> Having accomplished that, it is now possible to cure him of these unfortunate Masonic tendencies through the use of behavioral psychotherapy. So I remember just thinking it was hilarious that Monty Python was clever enough to parody such a interesting and weird group. And from that moment on, I was like, okay, 
let's put in Life of Brian right now because this shit's actually brilliant. You know, I was so entertained by these things that he was telling me and sharing with me. I We sort of came up with the idea of infiltrating a Masonic Lodge for fun as a prank. You know, and I was just coming at it from the perspective of, yeah, this would be hilarious. These sort of like secret society people that dress up in these aprons and outfits who talk funny, you know, to sneak in there. We're, we're just like high school kids. Yeah, it'd be hilarious if we fucking crashed one of those lodge meetings. In the town I grew up in, Pleasanton had a Masonic Lodge. They had a meeting on the first Wednesday of every month. I guess that's like a, a thing that most Masonic lodges do. And we showed up there. We dressed up. I don't think we had ties on. Like my friend wore his like Radio Shack. He was working at Radio Shack at the time. So he wore his like Radio Shack uniform, which looked kind of like a nice business attire, like casual business attire without a suit jacket, just like a dress shirt and black pants, slacks. And I tried to do the same thing. I like wore kind of like a nice shirt. So we go into this Masonic Lodge meeting in Pleasanton, California. We just walk in as the people are, all these like older men are walking in. Nobody was even close to our age. We were 17 or something at the time. We sit down in the empty chairs and uh, all these guys in really nice suits and ties. And, you know, they look like mostly older guys and they're, 50s and 60s were sitting around us we were by far the youngest people there and this guy with like a sword a top hat and an apron stands up at this podium and says welcome brethren like with a booming voice over this room and as soon as he yells that a guy taps us on the shoulder and he's like hi how are you doing he was like super polite and he's like or may i ask why you're here and when he said that, he held out his hand and gave us like a weird handshake that we didn't really put together at the time it was a Masonic handshake. And uh, this is while the guy is still talking to the, at the podium. He's talking really loudly. And this guy is sort of whispering to us in this voice while sort of tapping on my friend's shoulder. And he's like, oh, he's like, please come with me. Oh, first we actually said we were just here to check out the meeting. He must have assumed off the bat that we weren't already Freemasons. Asked us to come with him. He was still acting really nice and polite and didn't act like we had done anything wrong, necessarily. We weren't really afraid at this point or, like, bothered by it. But what he did was he just took us into the lobby of the lodge where they had all these little artifacts and antiques set up, like the compass and protractor, like a bronze cast of one and stuff like that. And he just started asking us why we were there. We told him that we wanted to show up for the Masonic Lodge meeting. And he said, well, do you know you have to be a member first to come to a meeting? And we said, no. We played dumb. I'm sure he knew that we were not telling the truth. But he still treated us very respectfully. He said that he would help us initiate to become a, a member of the lodge if we just wait in the lobby for him. And he would be, be back in five minutes. So we're sitting there in this lobby. We can still hear this you know, Masonic Lodge meeting head guy sort of with this booming voice in the other room. Couldn't really hear what he was saying. We just waited. Five minutes passed, 10 minutes passed, 20 minutes passed, a half an hour passed, 45 minutes passed. And we started to realize that the guy was not coming back. So I don't know if he wanted us to wait there until the lodge meeting was over or what, but we just, so we just got out of there. We thought, oh, that was funny that we got to see the opening 30 seconds of a Masonic Lodge meeting, and then we immediately got kicked out. 
So we proceeded to try to do it again. We did it in Oakland when I started going to art school in Oakland. So we were already out of high school. We went to the Rockridge Lodge in Oakland. Same deal. First Wednesday of the month, we saw that they had lodge meetings then. So we just walked in the front doors. The Rockridge Oakland Lodge is like a building. It's like a three-story building. And the bottom is just like the bottom floor. It's the lobby. There's just like mailboxes. It's like a hallway. There's really nothing down there. I don't really know what they use it for. We had to hit a buzzer. So when we hit the buzzer, we just said we're here for the meeting. They led us to the front door. Completely pitch black in the lobby. Creepy, scary. We we sort of think, okay, now I guess we go upstairs because you know the lo- the the lodge room is obviously not down here. So we tried to go up in the elevator, it was locked. There was no activity when we pressed the button. So then we saw the stairwell. Totally dark. There's barely any light except like coming in through the windows from the outside. So we start walking up the stairwell in the dark in a Masonic lodge that we were not supposed to be in. And as we're walking up like the second flight of stairs, we hear a voice booming from the top, yelling down at us, I see you! I see you! And I was like, oh shit. Like we we're going to get arrested or something. Like that was my immediate thought. Since we're already caught at that point, and they have a buzzer on the front door, which I'm assuming meant that they could lock us in too. Once the guy said, keep walking, keep walking, after he said he saw us walking up this dark stairwell, I, I just I was like, okay, we're going to get arrested. Like He's going to try to call the cops and say that we broke in here. Um, but we'll, and in my mind, I was like, we'll just play dumb again and pretend that we didn't know the rules or whatever. So as we get up to the top of the stairs, the guy that's yelling at us was a black gentleman with an apron on. And in, the, and in silhouette, I thought he was like a Freemason dressed as a Freemason. But what he was actually wearing was like a cook apron. And he had led us through the front door with the buzzer. And he asked us what we were doing there. And I said, well, we're here for the meeting. And he said, okay. Are you Freemasons? And we both said no. They were interested in becoming Freemasons. So then he sort of walked us over from the stairwell into the main sort of lit hallway area. And then we could see that there was a meeting taking place in the other room with like 100 Masons. Nobody was dressed in any formal attire. The guy speaking was dressed in a normal sort of casual suit. He didn't have an apron on. They weren't talking about Freemasons. I could overhear them almost talking about like the community. So we waited there and the cook guy was really nice to us actually. Like I thought we were going to be in trouble <laughs> again for sneaking into a Masonic Lodge. But he's like, let me go get someone for you. I'll bring someone out to talk to you. So we thought, okay, this is, we already went through this one time before. They're going to make us wait. You know, they're going to tell us to wait here, and then they're just not going to show up and just, like, keep us in the dark, leave us in this hallway, confused and nervous. But instead, like, 30 seconds later, this older gentleman came out, white guy, short guy, kind of big ears, kind of a mustache. He had sort of nice gelled head of hair, not really balding for an old man. Maybe he was about 70. This older gentleman said, I heard you two men would like to become Freemasons. Would you like to come in here and have dinner with us so that we can discuss uh, what it's like to be a Freemason? And my friend immediately, I think he got freaked out thinking that we were being 
trolled, that they were trying to fuck with us. I could tell by his facial expression and the vibe that he wanted to get the hell out of there immediately. So I made sure I said, yes, we would love to. Thank you. I was very effusive. I, I was, I acted like I was completely earnest in wanting to become a Freemason. And at that point, my friend had no choice. I mean, could have, I guess, ran down the hallway and, but we actually got a nice, perfectly fine dinner out of the situation. It was like a salmon, mashed potatoes, rice pilaf with a side of salad. It was perfectly fine. At the dinner table, these Masonic gentlemen and their wives, uh, which made me believe it wasn't an actual traditional lodge meeting because women are not allowed in them. It was must have been some kind of Masonic dinner, you know, event or something like that. But these three men uh, proceeded to tell me and my friend the whole story of why they became Masons, how they think that it teaches you character, it builds character, it builds honesty, it builds trust. It's a beautiful fraternity for people to love and have respect for one another and blah, blah. They went through the whole rigmarole and it just sounded really boring. The only interesting thing we got out of it was that they were really particularly proud of the fact that in their own lore, retelling of American history, Masons believe, as these old older men were telling me, specifically one of them, the guy who actually brought us over there, he was the most talkative. He, he was very, very proud of the fact that he believed that the American Revolution was sort of a Masonic act of Masonic philanthropy, that the Masons, with their immense help and resources, and the people who were Masons at the time and their involvement in that battle, he believes that the American Revolution would not have happened had it not been Freemasonry. A lot of Masons will try to downplay and act like it's just conspiracy theories, that it was insignificant. That was how I normally saw actual Masons respond to these accusations before. But this gentleman was actually showing me a different side of Freemasonry, one that embraced their sort of narrative about them being pivotal in the American Revolution. I found that very interesting. I, that was the first time I had been exposed to that. And so sort of from that point forward, I think I became more interested in the actual truth, not the conspiracies, not the deniers, not the Freemasons who are trying to downplay it, but what was the actual truth about how much Freemasonry was involved in the American Revolution? So I started to actually try to research it online, you know, library books, purchased a bunch of books. I'm looking at a stack right now of about 20 books on Freemasonry and adjacent subjects that I have been collecting over the last 20 years or so, more like last 30 years. I started buying some of these books when I was in high school. So my third and final time infiltrating a Masonic Lodge was actually probably my most fun time. So the first time I visited New York City, a good friend of mine at the time was going to New School University. It's a weird time. It was actually probably my first real foray into sort of the liberal art school, sort of like identity politics scene. This was around 2003. The Iraq war was sort of already in full swing. There were SWAT police all over Wall Street. There was a tank parked in the middle of Wall Street. There was army fatigued soldiers in the subways carrying machine guns. It was a weird time. 
I think it actually sort of shaped my political view at the time of just how bizarre that whole feeling was, that vibe, a feeling like there was sort of quasi-martial law in New York City. So anyways, I'm already going off on a tangent, but when we were just walking in Manhattan one day, just sort of randomly shopping, we passed by this gigantic building, and I see on the side there's a Masonic, big giant blue Masonic logo flag flying off the corner of it. So I walk up to the building and it says the Grand Lodge of Free and Accepted Masons of the State of New York, which I knew at the time that a Grand Lodge was a big deal. It was sort of the headquarters. Even though Masonic lodges are relatively unaffiliated, there is no overall hierarchy. The Grand Lodge sort of has an edict over the rest of the lodges in that state if they are part of the same Masonic sect. But this lodge happened to be one of the most powerful lodges in the country and I didn't realize it until I sort of just walked in and uh, walked past the security desk and I was actually with my now wife at the time Lori Kirchner she was like what are you doing she she didn't understand why I would just brazenly walk in we started dating after my era of crashing Masonic lodges so I don't remember exactly what I did but I remember I just sort of coaxed her and like come on like let's just go in and see how far in we can get in the building until they tell us to leave basically was my strategy and she wasn't super pleased about it but I ended up walking in with her and uh, we actually ended up getting to the elevator the guy at the desk didn't say anything to us um, I, I don't remember him asking us anything the elevator was open we got inside and uh, I just sort of looked at both of them, like with excited, wide, wide-eyed, childlike expression, thinking, "Oh my God, look, look what we fucking did! We snuck in, we snuck into a Masonic lodge in the elevator, and now look, the floors—we can go to any floor we want." So I popped in the floor number for the library, and uh, took us to like maybe the fourth or fifth floor. We get out of the elevator; it's just totally silent. No one's there. Uh, the library is fully lit has no sealed doorway entry or anything. We just walk straight into the library and just start browsing the books. And my my wife, uh, Lori, and my friend Stephen were just sort of begging me with their facial expressions to get the fuck out of there. Like Both their eyes and facial expressions were like, can we leave like right now? So I immediately tried to start to look for a book on William Morgan, which was a figure that I'm going to tell you about later in this podcast who was allegedly assassinated by Freemasons in the 1800s. As I'm sort of browsing around for this book or whatever, man walks up to me and he says, uh, can I help you? And I said, yes. Um, I was interested to see if you had any books on William Morgan. And he's like, well, do you have permission to be here? And I said, no, I, I didn't know that I had to have permission. I, permission I thought this might have been a public library and he's like no he's like you're not you're not allowed to be here and uh, I need to ask you to leave again you know there wasn't any like security guard or aggression it was more of a polite besetting of a boundary for some random strangers who walked into this library on the fifth floor of a random brick building that was the Grand Lodge of New York State so my social engineering skills kicked back in from the previous two times and I was like and I knew my friends were, and my wife were going to flip out and they were not going to be pleased with this but I said would you be willing to show me around because I'm interested in becoming a Freemason I'm interested in joining the Masons 
and uh, this looks like an important landmark for the Masons. And I, I think I sort of apologize and said, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that this wasn't a public space. You know, of course, of course we'll leave. But I think he sort of believed me in earnest, even though I was not. I don't want to become a Mason. I'm just doing this purely to fuck around as a prank. I don't give a fuck about joining the Masons. But I am interested in getting a first-hand tour of a private Masonic lodge that has this much history in it. And, you know, I could just tell by looking around at the walls, the artifacts, all the swords that they had, all the antiques, that this was a building and an important monument to Freemasonry. I could just tell by being in there. You could feel the age of it. You could feel the legacy of it. So he, he takes us inside the temple room. And it was the first time I'd ever been inside such a beautiful-looking, opulent room that was private that was something that like was not made for the public to appreciate so first time i've ever been in like a private space where i was like this is this feels like something you that should be like a museum or something like what does indiana jones say this should be in a museum like that this couldn't be appreciated by the public just sort of struck me like wow this this alone kind of makes a little sense to me why masons feel so special that they perform their rituals and their you know, in this temple room that is so opulent and beautiful and with real marble floors and the checkerboard floor, which is very common in Masonic lodges, was done with this beautiful marble, marble panels, a gigantic checkerboard floor and these gigantic pillars, bronze, you know, pillars holding up these gigantic, what almost look like glass sphere globes, you know, and then beautiful ceiling panels like with all these colors, sort of reds and greens. That color scheme was in there. And just all these colors and the way that this room looked coming together, I just remember thinking, wow, this is incredible. So glad I didn't just cave and get scared and be like, yeah, I'm sorry for being in here. Uh, Where's the exit? Because here I was for the first time ever actually being inside of a private temple room. As we walk to the middle of the room, we get to this broken slab. So the room itself looks beautiful. It's it's really intact. There's really nothing wrong with it. Nothing dilapidated feeling about it. But we walk up to this broken old, looks like a, a dusty piece of marble that had sort of lost its shellac or its or its gloss or its polish. It was sort of a of a greenish, cloudy color. And the man said, "I want you to kneel down on this piece of marble for me." So I I do it. And I don't know what I was expecting. I I was actually a little bit scared. I thought that this whole time this guy was being really friendly to me, showing me around this lodge, that he was going to pull some kind of trick on me or something, like pull my ear or take some kind of Masonic dagger out and put it close to my face. I I honestly was like, all these things were running through my head. So I'm just sort of kneeling there, and and he tells me to close my eyes. And he said, do you know where you are kneeling right now? And I said, no, I, I don't. And he said, you are kneeling in the same spot that Franklin Delano Roosevelt kneeled when he took his initiation ritual, his initiation rites. You are kneeling in the same spot that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the President of the United States, kneeled and broke this slab of marble with his metal polio braces. One thing at the time that people didn't know necessarily was that FDR actually did walk for parts of his life when he did have polio. 
but with the aid of leg braces that made him sort of walk really straight. And he didn't look like he can really bend at the knee. So one contradiction I'm, I'm kind of thinking of after this event, first, when I first heard this story from this mason who was telling me to kneel on the slab of marble, I thought he was just telling me complete bullshit. Even though Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a member of this lodge, I thought that the story of him kneeling down on this marble and breaking it was bullshit. Until I sort of found out that, yeah, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did wear leg braces and he did actually walk around for parts of his life. So that was the last time I, um, I, I crashed a, a Masonic lodge and, and got to go inside of it. So that's, that's what got me actually like interested in this subject as history and trying to understand what actual influence Freemasonry had back then during the revolutionary time period and what influence it still has today and just what influence it had over American culture and events, you know, for the past couple hundred years too. So on this podcast today, I'm going to be giving you a overview on the American history of Freemasonry and how it shaped aspects of our culture, the way that we talk, the phrases that we use. The American narrative itself and the way that Americans are so good at creating these false narratives about its own country have their roots in Freemasonry. A lot of the American narratives have their roots in fiction. Because that's what Freemasonry is essentially at its core, is it uses biblical narratives and very specific aspects of the Bible to create this larger framework that they come from a lineage of people who are part of this secret Stoneworkers Guild going back to pre-biblical times. Even though their historical origins only show them existing since the 1600s, they believe that their lineage actually goes back all the way to the Bible. And the foundational myth of Freemasonry uh, that I'm going to start this podcast with, it's really important to understand, to, to fully grasp what Freemasonry is about and how it shaped culture, is the foundational aspect of Freemasonry being based off of the Temple of Solomon, also known as King Solomon's Temple from the Old Testament. Son of King David from the Bible, Solomon. Solomon who had thousands of women, 300 wives and 700 concubines, according to the Bible. Solomon had this temple built, according to the Bible, in 10 BC. And one of the rules of it was it was not allowed to have any idols of any kind, any religious idols of any kind. The temple itself was believed to have been built with the instructions by God. And King Solomon, according to the Bible, was directing these instructions from God to the architects that built the temple. And it honestly wasn't until I understood the full significance of King Solomon's temple, not just biblically, but how it was perceived through time by different academics, 
different scientists, including Isaac Newton, and then later the Freemasons, and even Mormonism. I, d I didn't fully understand, really, honestly, what Freemasonry is all about. As long as I've been studying it, looking at it, researching it as a hobby, the rituals, the occultish rituals that they do, do not necessarily reveal what's at the heart of it. And even though it's very obvious and symbolic that King Solomon's Temple plays a huge role in the foundations of Freemasonry, it's not really clear without understanding the significance of the temple and how people thought it was imbued with magical, godlike powers that you actually will fully understand why Masonry has so much meaning to people and why it was so influential. Now, King Solomon was a weird guy, according to the Bible. He wasn't just a horny motherfucker who had a thousand women. He didn't just have the most gold in the world, which was he, he was alleged to have at the time in his temple, which was supposed to be a religious temple. It seems odd to just fill it with gold. That was what it was like at the time. King Solomon built this temple on the Temple Mount, or right near the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, according to the Bible, the Old Testament, is where Abraham was going to sacrifice his son around the same location where Cain killed Abel. Now, there are two fundamental biblical myths that underpin Freemasonry. There are two primary ones. One of them is, is the myths surrounding King Solomon's Temple. Another is a narrative or more of the parable meaning of the Cain and Abel story. Tubal Cain, a more obscure character in the Bible that is the fourth grandson of Cain, is a foundational character in Freemasonry. And additionally, Tubal Cain in the Bible was the first blacksmith. He is stated in the Bible of being the first forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. I'll go back to the significance of the Cain and Abel story to Freemasonry later, because first I want to get through the temple. King Solomon was a weird dude. He apparently was a expert magician, practiced his own magic rituals. There was something that comes up later, practices of magic and alchemy called Solomon's Key, the Key of Solomon, that was sort of used by alchemists and different people who practiced magic in the 16th century. It became popular because things involving sort of the occultish and mystical aspects of King Solomon and his temple became very fashionable during this time period, enlightenment. The idea of combining science and religion, the idea of having a scientific basis for religion became a very trendy topic, specifically the Bible, specifically Judeo-Christian religion. It got mixed in too with magic and alchemy. So, important aspects of King Solomon's temple, just so you can understand it in layman's terms. Of all the physical objects ever constructed in the Bible that are described in the Bible, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, when you take them all together, the spear of destiny that is alleged to have pierced Christ's side while he was on the cross, the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, all these objects, taking them all together, the one you don't hear about very often in modern times is that the temple itself, that Solomon's temple, the architecture in which it was built was imbued 
with godly powers. The building itself was a sacred object. All the other sacred objects I just described to you, the Ark of the Covenant, Moses' stone tablets, the Holy Grail, were all throughout different interpretations of the Bible and biblical lore described being housed inside King Solomon's temple. And specifically, the transfer of the Ark of the Covenant is actually described in the Bible as being transferred to King Solomon's temple. In the Bible, it's also described that King Solomon's temple is destroyed and rebuilt at points. There is no historical agreement or archaeological agreement on exactly where King Solomon's temple is or was built, or if it even actually existed at all. Some historians believe it's in Jerusalem. Other historians believe it may be in Jordan. Solomon's temple had inside of it other strange artifacts like the Molten Sea, a giant bronze cast of a pool, essentially like a swimming pool for water. If you look at a picture of it, it's, it's pretty wild what it looks like. It has a bunch of calves surrounding a giant bronze chalice, and it almost looks sort of like Egyptian or something like that. Here's a description of what the Molten Sea was supposed to look like piecing together different passages from the Bible. The Molten Sea or Brazen Sea was a large basin in the temple in Jerusalem made by Solomon for absolution of the priests. It is described in 1 Kings 7.23-26 and 2 Chronicles 4.2.5. It stood in the southeastern corner of the inner court. According to the Bible, it was five cubits high, ten cubits in diameter from brim to brim, and 30 cubits in circumference. The brim was like the rim of a cup or like a lily blossom, and its thickness was a hand breadth, three or four inches. It was placed on the backs of 12 oxen, standing with their faces outward. It was capable of containing two or 3,000 baths of water. The fact that it was a wash basin, which was too large to enter from above, lends to the idea that water would likely have flowed from it down into a subcontainer beneath. The water was originally supplied by the Gibeonites, but was afterwards brought by a conduit from Solomon's pools. The molten sea was made of brass or bronze, which Solomon had taken from the captured cities. Ahaz later removed this lava from the oxen and placed it on the stone pavement. So you have to think of this temple the way that this looked in pre-Christ. It was a Jewish temple. So this molten sea bronze bath was so tall that nobody could actually climb inside of it. The Bible describes it as being tall enough where you had to actually get in it from above, like with a ladder. What most people I don't think realize except for, and it was mainly practiced by Kabbalah practitioners, who believe in numerology and believe in decoding biblical prophecies, and that's one of their sort of main things. Other than Kabbalah practitioners, in the times of early Christianity and Catholicism, the idea that the temple itself was the most important physical artifact in the entire scriptures was not 
necessarily a narrative that religions would tell. It's not a narrative that the Catholic Church would tell. It was a narrative that certain Jewish practitioners were telling and that certain rabbis at the time believed. So in the Bible, King Solomon, who inherited this divine power from his father, told people that he communicated directly to God through magic rituals and through, through various unknown forms, tasked a man named Hiram, according to the Old Testament. So this is what I mean by a mixture of fact and fiction, which the Masons are very good at doing, is that there is a character named Hiram I in the Bible who was described to be not just an architect, but also a king. He was the Phoenician king, according to the Bible. Now, there's only one passage in the Bible about him being instructed by King Solomon to get together a bunch of architects and stone workers to build the temple. This was his role in the Bible. Now, what Freemasons have done is they've constructed their own character named Hiram Abif. In the Masonic retelling of his story, was presented as actually the chief architect of King Solomon's temple. That he had the secrets and understood the divine instructions given to King Solomon to build this temple. I'm going to go into the Hiram Abif Masonic version of the building of King Solomon's temple later in this podcast when I go through the Masonic initiation ritual, which centers around the murder of Hiram Abif, according to the Masons, was the actual architect of King Solomon's temple. Hiram Abif was a master Mason. At the time, according to Freemasons, there were stone workers' guilds, and according to historians, there were also stone workers' guilds. These guilds were essentially secret societies in and of themselves because stoneworking and architecture was secret knowledge that only few understood. It was kept not just a trade secret, but that it was actually a secret society slash union slash workers union. This knowledge was extremely secret throughout time. One of the other foundational myths of Freemasonry is that this knowledge was not only extremely important, the origin story, but that also Hiram Abiff constructed what is arguably the most powerful and divine physical object described in the Bible. Before the Holy Grail became sort of this primary biblical myth, this artifact that people search for, the temple became historically something that got weaved into a lot of later myths, not just Freemasonry. Because there's another connection point here the Knights of Templar, which was an offshoot from the Catholic Church during the Crusades. These Crusaders, they seeked refuge in a mosque. But according to the book, Secrets of the Knights Templar by S.J. Hodge, he says, some of the most enduring legends surrounding the Knights Templar revolve around the location of their first headquarters, believed by many at the time to be the Temple of Solomon. From the time they moved into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, stories began emerging about their activities inside the building. After making their vows, the nine knights returned to the quarters they had been given in the mosque 
that had been renamed the Templum Solomonis under Christian occupation. This was as sacred to Christians as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because it was assumed that it stood on the site of Solomon's original temple. It was, of course, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which had been built soon after 674. So some of these crusaders during the Crusades seeked refuge inside this mosque known as Al-Aqsa. So according to Wikipedia, it says, the rise of the Knights Templar after the Franks in the First Crusade captured Jerusalem from Muslim conquerors in 1099, many Christians made pilgrimages to various sacred sites in the Holy Land. Although the city of Jerusalem was relatively secure under Christians' control, the rest of Outremur was not. Bandits and marauding highwaymen preyed upon these Christian pilgrims. In 1119, the French knight Hugh de Payen approached King Baldwin II of Jerusalem and Warmond, Patriarch of Jerusalem, and proposed creating a monastic order for the protection of these pilgrims. King Baldwin and Patriarch Warmond agreed to the request, probably at the Council of Nablus in January 1120, and the king granted the Templars a headquarters in a wing of the royal palace on the Temple Mount in the captured Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, it was originally started as a military order by a wing of the Catholic Church. This took place in 1119, but already they agreed to let this group of crusaders who had settled on the what they believed to be the ruins of King Solomon's Temple, they gave them the authority to start becoming a military order. According to this book, during their occupation, the Templars spent a great deal of time excavating beneath Temple Mount. It is widely alleged that they found something of great significance there. One not conclusive ideas about what this could have been range from lost religious text to holy relics, variously claimed to have been the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, the Spear of Destiny, secret information relating to lost building skills, and even legacies about Jesus. The hypothesis about what this could have been are fueled by the many mystical stories that have emerged about Solomon himself. Combining all the religious texts together, King Solomon appears to be one of the most powerful living figures that was given the most knowledge about the universe. There might be other powerful human figures like Jesus Christ, like Noah, for various reasons in the Bible, but in terms of a figure that had the most knowledge and the closest connection to God for the longest time period is King Solomon. This book says that a Roman Jewish historian named Titus Flavius Josephus wrote in his eight book of the Antiquities of the Jews of the magical works ascribed to Solomon. For example, now so great was the prudence and wisdom which God granted Solomon that he surpassed the ancients and even the Egyptians. He composed a thousand and five books of odes and songs and three thousand books of parables and similitudes. For he spoke a parable about every kind of tree from the hyssop to the cedar. There was no form of nature which which he was not acquainted or which he passed over without examining. But he studied them all philosophically and revealed the most complete knowledge of their several properties. And God granted him knowledge of the art 
used against demons for the benefit of healing of men. Now I should mention here that Kabbalah practitioners throughout the centuries were the ones with probably the strongest views and most passionate views on sort of the divine powers of King Solomon, not just the temple. And I don't want to make this all about the Old Testament and the New Testament because what's really fascinating to me about Solomon is if you combine all the main religious texts together, the Quran, the Old Testament, the Talmud, and the New Testament, Solomon is referenced and hyped up more than any other figure in any of those religious texts combined in terms of a character who had the closest relationship to God. In Islam, King Solomon was represented a little differently. What's similar about the Bible's telling of King Solomon and Islam is that God actually granted King Solomon any wish that he desired throughout his lifetime. One of the th reasons that religious scholars find him such an admirable figure is because one of his main wishes was for God to give him wisdom. He didn't ask for money or women, which apparently he had uh, the most of both pretty much in the entire world at the time, but he asked to be bestowed with wisdom directly from God. In the Quran, Solomon's actually able to control the wind. It says that the wind was controlled by his own will and that the jinn, also known as the genie, also came under Solomon's control. In the teachings of the Quran, they say that Solomon actually understood the languages of all animal creatures on earth and could speak to them and hear them. In the Quran, there's actually a section about Solomon hearing from an ant. In the Quran, it says one day, Solomon and his army entered Wadin Namol. On seeing Solomon and his army, a female ant warned all the others to, quote, get into your habitations, lest Solomon and his hosts crush you underfoot without knowing it. Immediately understanding what the ant said, Solomon, as always, prayed to God, thanking him for bestowing him such gifts, and further avoided trampling over the ant colonies. In Quranic lore, Solomon did not just have human armies, that he actually was able to conscript jinn. Now, the original sort of supernatural lore of a jinn or a genie which is the angelicized version of a jinn, was that they were basically an intelligent form of spirit that was at a lower hierarchical rank than an angel. They were mischievous and they did a lot of bad shit, but they also did things for humans. According to the Quran, Solomon's army was comprised of human soldiers and jinn fighting for him and his army. In the Talmud, Solomon actually uses a shamir, which is something that Bible scholars have tried to figure out what it is, but people have sort of determined that it's either a tool or some kind of living creature that resembles the shape of a worm that had the power to cut through or disintegrate stone, iron or diamond. It was essentially a magic tool that Solomon had. Now, because of all his close connections to God, you know, it's sort of assumed this is where he got this tool. Solomon was also said to have a ring which he could capture demons in it and also summon demons to sort of beckon them to do his bidding.
So Solomon was able to capture demons inside his ring, like the Flash is able to keep his costume inside of his magic ring. And Solomon would summon these demons sometimes to get them to explain himself. So he had the power over demons, and he could enslave them. Now, angels are also mentioned in this biblical story of the building of King Solomon's temple. According to some Kabbalah practitioners and rabbinical legend, the angels actually helped build King Solomon's temple, but not by choice. They were actually forced to do it. It's quite interesting to see the way that Solomon's power is represented throughout Bible and religious texts, that he was able to wield power over actual angels and demons regularly in the stories about him. There's really no other character in the Bible who's a human being, or really in any of the religious texts, the Quran, that was able to do such things. Early adherents of Kabbalah believed that Solomon actually was able to fly and sail through the air on his own throne. And in the Bible, they describe him constantly uh, being at his throne, that Solomon's throne was somehow always being moved around. In Masonic lore, Solomon's chair, or Solomon's throne, is often featured in a temple room as the space for the worshipful master to sit in. There's been a lot of people over the centuries trying to reverse engineer what kind of magic Solomon used. What was Solomon's key, which became a sort of a very popular alchemical sigil, which if you look at Solomon's key in the sigil that it, that it visually appears like, whoever came up with this concept, it's not clear where it came from or how far back it goes or if it's just totally made up and has nothing to do with Solomon. But it very much strongly resembles Masonic symbolism and ritual. There's a very strong connection between Solomon's key and the alleged magic that Solomon was said to have practiced with the occultism of Freemasonry. There is a direct line between the two. There is also a direct line between Kabbalah practitioners and Masonry. The representations of the columns in a Masonic lodge are meant to represent the tree of life in Kabbalah but also Solomonic columns, which is a spiraling column that apparently comes from the design of King Solomon's temple. We overlook the temple itself for all these other artifacts. The Ark of the Covenant, the Indiana Jones movies are made about those artifacts. But what about this part that says secret information relating to lost building skills? Now, I already told you that there was the treasure of King Solomon's tomb. People thought that the Knights Templars were digging for the treasure and had discovered the treasure, and that was the source of their power, was actually their wealth. Now, these rumors started to spread among the Catholic Church, you know, rumor that it wasn't just that the, they had a secret society, that they had secret religious practices that were actually going against the Catholic Church that they were hiding. Some of these practices allegedly included swearing at the Holy Trinity, committing blasphemy as, as part of the ritual intentionally, spitting on the crucifix and on the cross. Nobody knows for sure if any of these things are true. The actual rituals that the Knights Templars performed are unclear. But one of the more interesting things that they might have actually done 
it seems more likely, is that they were actual secret converts to Islam. There is some evidence to show this, um, and that that was actually what their real sacrilegious act was. And then there was also rumors in the Catholic Church that they worshipped Baphomet. That they actually worshipped a dark deity. The Inquisition of the Knights Templar, they were all charged with heresy. In a papal declaration, it declared that when professing, the brothers were required to deny Christ, to spit on the cross, and to place three obscene kisses on the lower spine, the navel, and the mouth. They were obliged to indulge in carnal relations with other members of the order if requested, and finally they wore a small belt which had been consecrated by touching a strange idol, which looked like a human head with a long beard. On August 12, 1308, the charges would be increased, stating that the Templars worshipped idols, specifically made of a cat and a head, the latter having three faces. Now, it's a very interesting thing because sort of a lot of rumors swirling around Freemasonry to this day, actually, that have gone throughout history for hundreds of years about them secretly worshiping a deity with three heads, with three faces named Jabulon. This is sort of what's come out of a lot of the conspiracy theorizing and rumors about Freemasonry, but apparently originates from the actual trials against the Knights Templar, although they don't refer to it by any specific name. They just refer to it as idols, which were sacrilegious. It was a really long trial in France. Pope Clement V was in charge of running these trials. There were also trials in England, Ireland, and Scotland. And these trials in 1310, May 12th, resulted in the burning of 54 Knights Templars at the stake. The church also tried to seize all their assets and land and because of the power that the Knights Templars had accumulated, it was actually rather difficult to do. Even 40 years after the trial, the church still wasn't able to acquire most of the Templars' land. They only had nominal control over the amount of land that the Templars had accumulated. Their origin story has sort of a rumor embedded in it that's not really technically part of their historical origin story, but is heavily involved in all of the narratives about the Knights Templar since, about them being the secret discoverers and sort of owners of the ruins of King Solomon's temple and having access to whatever was contained in there, specifically this secret knowledge of how King Solomon's temple was built. Now, the idea that the Knights Templar was sort of basing their secret knowledge or their rituals off of things that they had found in the temple, that myth surrounding that, kind of, it does harken back to the sort of Soma Hindu Rig Veda myth. What, what are they talking about? What is Soma? What was the secret knowledge that they had? Elysian mysteries in Greece in the mid-4th century BC. The idea that you know, they had a secret society and that they may have actually been getting this, you know, spiritual knowledge from the heavens through a toxic gas coming out of a cave. So I see the Knights Templar myth origin story sort of falling in that same category a little bit. That they had sort of a magic understanding or knowledge that the Catholic Church didn't know about. 
that actually dated back pre-Catholic Church to the actual powers of God imbued in this temple itself. But Masons themselves are the ones who connect themselves to the Knights Templar. There is no actual connection. In fact, maybe it's almost some kind of trolling attempt to throw it in the face of the Catholic Church to make the Catholic Church even more paranoid about Masonry, to put it into Catholics' minds that Masons are actually the secret descendants of the Knights Templar who became enemies against the Catholic Church and were later excommunicated and purged in mass executions. So you're beginning to see how Freemasons were not just extremely good storytellers and extremely good retroactive continuity writers by inserting their own origin story into the Old Testament, that they're actually connecting parts of their own origin story and their evolution from freestone Masons, who actually practiced stoneworking, to the later speculative occult secret society Freemasonry, they're concocting their own little stepping stones of their own origin story to this very powerful, very mysterious organization that was considered very bad by the Catholic Church. And this reflects, I think, part of what Masons do and what Masons believe in, sort of their belief system. They imbue themselves with this power, and part of the way they imbue themselves with that power, the power of the grand architect of the universe or their attempts to get closer to this Godhead, is by artificially constructing this lineage to themselves and other people throughout history who had secret knowledge, secret powerful spiritual understanding of the universe. The Egyptians, the builders of King Solomon's temple, the Knights Templar, who are alleged to have secretly inherited the ruins of King Solomon's temple. And as you'll see, they later did it to the Royal Society in England and the Enlightenment movement by portraying Isaac Newton as sort of the progenitor or someone who also had some kind of link to Freemasonry. Although, again, there is a kernel of truth inside there, just like there's a kernel of truth with the Knights Templar. Did the Knights Templar actually find the ruins of King Solomon's temple? Why did they concoct these rituals? Why did rumors start to swirl that they had inherited the magic and the secret to the way King Solomon's temple was built. Is any of that actually true? Was any of that actually believed back then? So these are the kernels of truth that Masons have used to flesh out their own origin story throughout history. Now, we should actually mention now that in 1599, uh, the first Masonic Lodge was formed. The first official Lodge meeting minutes, apparently, is July 31st, 1599, the Lodge of Edinburgh, Scotland, was technically the first Masonic Lodge in record. And when the Masonic Lodge first started, when Masons first started, it was merely an extension of the already existing Free Stone Mason Working Guilds, the Workers' Union, the secret society where they shared trade secrets and they had secret code words that existed before. But at this point... There was no speculative occult rituals on record that Freemasons were into or subscribed to. 
It was very much associated with an industry. But this changed throughout the 1600s and definitely drastically changed in the 1700s. But unfortunately, since Masons do sort of shroud their own history in secrecy and in retconning history deliberately, some of them are actually probably just lazy historians or don't even care about history and just are more Washington Irving-style storytellers. But because of that, unfortunately, cannot specify a chronology of when their occultish rituals became developed. But we can get actually pretty close. And we can get pretty close to explaining the cultural influences from the time that inspired them and where they came from. It wasn't until in 1604 uh, that a three-volume commentary on Ezekiel came out by a Jesuit priest that had illustrated in it what most people in the public had never seen before, a full visual rendition of what this Jesuit priest believed to be King Solomon's temple. And the general gist of this three-volume commentary by this Jesuit priest, who was named Juan Batista Villapando, was this idea that the buildings in Jerusalem, but specifically the, we don't even know if it exists, King Solomon's temple design, were designed based on not just on the laws of geometry, but on laws of the universe that only God could have known. And generally speaking, this is an interesting thesis in Villapondo's argument, is that he believed that there was actually a link between original architectural designs and all architecture going back in human history to Solomon's temple itself. And that Solomon's temple revealed in it the classical orders that had their origin and specifications detailed by God. This is where it gets interesting. So if you've been listening to this, all this boring backstory, this is where it gets really interesting. And I'm going to explain to you now why the temple became such an object of fascination, but obsession by arguably one of the most famous scientists, mathematicians in the world, Isaac Newton. Now, this three-volume commentary by Juan Batista was meant to give some kind of scientific backing to religion, to the Bible. But specifically, the temple itself, he was theorizing that it actually contained within it the laws of the entire universe, what could now be referred to by quantum physics people as the unified theory, that in the actual architecture of the temple, the way that it was designed, the way that it was built, in the instructions given to King Solomon by God, it had in them the keys to unlocking the secrets of the entire universe and the keys to unlocking the secrets of time. Later, people who became obsessed with writings by Juan Batista and, and the sort of the, his idea of what King Solomon's temple represented. Isaac Newton also believed, who was heavily influenced by Juan Batista's work, Isaac Newton believed, especially towards the end of his life, that within the architecture of King Solomon's temple, understanding how it was designed and the math behind it, it would give him some kind of insight or some kind of secret ability to decode biblical prophecy and to be able to predict the future. 
which Isaac Newton believed he could do with some accuracy, not total accuracy, but he actually believed that he predicted the apocalypse. In his own writings and manuscripts, he believes that the world will definitely end in 2060. Actually, the time window he calculated is 2016 to 2060. He publishes a series of experiments. He went on sort of this rampage where he basically dropped most of his most important influential scientific discoveries in like a three to four year period. Now, we know mostly of Isaac Newton as being a scientist. The Cambridge Newton Chair, which is also known as the Lucasian Chair of Mathematics, the University of Cambridge. Isaac Newton took the position in 1669 and stayed there for 33 years. Stephen Hawking served there for 30 years and he stepped down. Two-thirds of Isaac Newton's work went unpublished until around 1936 to 1939. And what most people did not fully realize about Isaac Newton and are sort of the narrative that people understood about him culturally was that he was mostly a man of science. But what these manuscripts revealed and still really hasn't gotten enough attention. A lot of religious people, religious scholars, like to make a big deal out of it and say this proves that religion and science needs to be sort of thought of together because Isaac Newton was so obsessed. But it does show that Isaac Newton, two-thirds of his writings were religious-based and was him obsessing over the Bible through the lens of Math, geometry, and numerology. Among that two-thirds of his works was alchemy that he also worked on. He was trying to reproduce magical objects from the Bible through chemical processes. But the last book he published when he was about 80 years old had his main lifetime obsession in it, a code that he believed he could not fully crack, but that he believed he was getting very close to cracking. A book that had the blueprints of the internal structure of King Solomon's temple by Isaac Newton. So we see all this, you know, stuff throughout history, Leonardo da Vinci's drawings of all these inventions, his different designs, his concepts. But I feel like this aspect of Isaac Newton is largely lost, that he was obsessing over the math of King Solomon's temple, because somehow... Isaac Newton had the belief that King Solomon's temple, the geometry and architecture of it, held the secret to time itself, that the nature of time could be decoded once he understood how King Solomon's temple was built. And let me explain a little deeper what this means, that Isaac Newton was a huge believer in prophecy. He believed that biblical prophecy was 100% real, but that it was impossible to decode without discovering the key to the language which he believed was somehow inside the architecture of King Solomon's temple. I'm going to read some quotes here from the Phoenix Masonry website. Uh, they also have a library, Phoenix Masonry. It's actually probably one of the best resources about Freemasonic history online. Um, they have a ton of original documents scanned. Great website. The section of their website called Isaac Newton's Studies of the Temple of Solomon. Newton believed that the temple was designed by King Solomon with privileged eyes and divine guidance. To Newton, the geometry of the temple represented more than a mathematical blueprint, 
It also provided a time frame chronology of Hebrew history. It was for this reason that he included a chapter beloved to the temple with the chronology of ancient kingdoms amended, a section which initially may seem unrelated to the historical nature of the book as a whole. Newton felt that just as the writings of ancient philosophers, scholars, and biblical figures contained with them unknown secrets and sacred wisdom, the same was true of their architecture. He believed that these men had hidden their knowledge in a complex code of symbolic and mathematical language that when deciphered would reveal an unknown knowledge of how nature works. In 1675, Newton annotated a copy of Mana, a disquisition of the nature of alchemy, an anonymous treatise in which had been given to him by his fellow scholar Ezekiel Foxcroft. In his annotation, Newton reflected upon his reason for examining Solomon's temple by writing, This philosophy, both speculative and active, is not only to be found in the volume of nature, but also in the sacred scriptures, as in Genesis, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, and others. In the knowledge of this philosophy, God made Solomon the greatest philosopher in the world. The book continues, Newton considered himself to be one of a select group of individuals who were specifically chosen by God for the task of understanding biblical scripture. He was a strong believer in prophetic interpretation of the Bible, and like many of his contemporaries in Protestant England, he developed a strong affinity and deep admiration for the teachings and works of Joseph Mead. Isaac Newton was a pretty crazy dude uh, by today's standards. He would have been considered at best an eccentric and maybe at worst a totally insane person and also a heretic. Um, Isaac Newton in his own writings that were unpublished until 1936 uh, revealed that he did not believe in the Holy Trinity, which was considered heretical at the time. In general, Newton's obsession and his perception on religion was that the Bible was real, it was written with the word of God, but that people over time had corrupted the meaning of it. So that his whole thing was getting to sort of the original Jewish spiritualism behind the Bible. Isaac Newton discovered his theories on optics, which is still considered valid today, by shoving a knitting needle into his eye socket and lifting his eyeball up, according to his own narrative, that this is how he, he believed that, that white light was composed of multiple colors, because when he shoved a knitting needle inside of his eye socket and lifted his eyeball up to create enough space that he believed he could see different circles of light that when combined together, combined his, his sort of full optical picture. Who knows if these stories are actually true or not? Isaac Newton also, you know, famously claims that he, his theories on gravity came from an apple falling on him from a tree. That was actually written by him into his own narrative. A uh, very likely made-up story. I mean, how often do apples actually fall off of trees while, while you're sitting under them? You know, it's a cartoonishly false narrative, but Isaac Newton, you know, out of this little narrative about the apple falling from the tree, discovered his theories on gravity, which also led to his discovery of calculus, which was such an important form of mathematics that it's pretty much defined all of science and mathematics today computer programming, algorithms, statistics. I'm actually fairly bad with math, so I can't tell you much more than that other than calculus revolves around the premise of a state of something changing over time. Calculus allows you to calculate that, and that's part of how 
Newton developed his theories of gravity. He got these theories to go out there and float without fully revealing sort of the reverse engineering them for people. So his theories were so powerful and the experiments were repeatable, especially with a prism, uh, you know, showing that it refracts white light into multiple colors and then able to turn it back into white light. Those were repeatable experiments. But then scientists started to, several years later, come out and say that these experiments were wrong and that his theories were actually incorrect. So it sort of put him up against the wall, created all this embarrassment and shame for him. He was a very insecure person, apparently. And it sort of forced his hand into revealing his whole calculus theory and the math that he came up with to form sort of the fundamentals of calculus. And from then on, his work was basically confirmed. People realized that his critics were wrong and that he had actually developed his own form of mathematics built on all the previous forms of mathematics, geometry, algebra, etc. Isaac Newton was no fap. He was celibate. He's actually uh, on, he's talked about his own choice to become celibate. This is actually not too uncommon for, for high level people who d deal with high level important ideas, as Dave Rubin would say. Um, but there's something else you need to understand about the context of time in which Isaac Newton was living in. This was the time period where the plague had just hit, the plague had just ended, London burnt down to the ground, a comet that people you know hadn't seen a comet in like centuries was constantly flying in the air. It felt to a lot of people like it was the end times. A lot of people believed at the time that it was the end times and messianic thinking, predicting the end of the world, sort of that sort of biblical prophecy decoding was trendy during this time period. It became sort of a trendy thing for people to do, even people who were not necessarily Christian uh, to do. Because, you know, all these things happening around them in the world felt like it was the end of the world. Comparing COVID-19 now to the plague, let me just give you some stats of how bad the plague was so you can fully understand. The bubonic plague, as it's known, also known as the Black Plague, uh, that was, you know, sort of intertwined with the Dark Ages, it came back multiple times from the 1300s to the late 1800s. So... One of the major sort of outbursts of the plague was during Newton's early life. It was from 1665 to 1666, and it literally eliminated a quarter of London's population in 18 months, um, over 100,000 people in the whole of England. So just so you can understand the context of the time period Newton was living in, Newton had this belief that other people believed who had sort of reached this pinnacle of intellectualism, math, and theology. Because keep in mind, if I didn't already say it clearly enough on this podcast, only one-third or less of Isaac Newton's writings were actually scientific. The majority of his life was spent on theology, prophecy, and alchemy. The overwhelming majority of his writing was on either three of those subjects. And some chronology as well. He was very interested in um, establishing history based on the Bible and trying to create a more accurate, in his mind, portrayal of human history. So Isaac Newton, unlike this priest, Juan Batista, who wrote the trilogy on King Solomon's temple and how it basically decoded the universe, 
which was a geocentric model which portrayed the sun revolving around the earth. Isaac Newton's spin on King Solomon's temple incorporated modern astronomy and our modern understanding of the universe sort of transposed over Juan Batista's theories, which turned those same theories into a heliocentric model of the universe. Now, Freemasons like to claim, again, sort of rewriting their own history, that somehow they're descendants of sort of the Royal Society, secret knowledge learned from Isaac Newton, you know, his knowledge of alchemy, his combination of geometry, astronomy, and theology. But that would be sort of a retcon, again, by Freemasons. And the only reason I just spent so much time on Isaac Newton is because it was a reflection of the times. Isaac Newton was more of a reflection of the time period, and even he considered one of the most influential, important scientists of the last thousand years was also obsessed with the temple and alchemy, just like other secret societies were, like the Rosicrucians were obsessed with alchemy and Egypt. There is some loose connection between Isaac Newton and Freemasonry, but it's actually a little more interesting because there isn't a direct connection, like Isaac Newton was not a Freemason. Isaac Newton was obsessed with the temple, but there's no evidence that Masons got their obsession with the temple from Isaac Newton's writings because, actually, his writings about the temple, most of them were not fully known until 1936, when famous economist John Maynard Keynes purchased them at an auction. A bunch of unpublished manuscripts of Isaac Newton's about the temple got released. Keynes was obsessed with Newton, and he actually did a speech at the Royal Society of London that I'm about to tell you about in 1942 on Newton. And it's kind of interesting that this modern guy who most economic theorists base their theories on was also sort of obsessed with Newton, and he bought a bunch of his theology manuscripts about the temple. There's no evidence that Keynes was a Freemason or anything like that. It's just sort of interesting to think that, did someone like Keynes actually practice in the occult? Did he have sort of his own occultish belief systems? Did he have his own sort of weird, esoteric way of looking at the world that he somehow related to Isaac Newton? This is what Keynes had to say. Newton was not the first of the Age of Reason. He was the last of the magicians, the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians the last great mind which looked out on the visible and intellectual world with the same eyes as those who began to build our intellectual inheritance rather less than 10,000 years ago. Isaac Newton, a posthumous child born with no father on Christmas Day, 1642, was the last wonder child to whom the Magi could do sincere and appropriate homage. Why do I call him a magician? because he looked on the whole universe and all that is in it as a riddle, as a secret which could be read by applying pure thought to certain evidence, certain mystic clues which God had laid about the world to allow a sort of philosopher treasure hunt to the esoteric brotherhood. I mean, there's a whole Masonic tone to all that. The actual connection between Isaac Newton and Freemasonry is that the Royal Society of London, 
that Isaac Newton was a founding fellow of also had a founding fellow named Elias Ashmole. And Ashmole is kind of an unknown figure, mostly in history. You don't really hear about him in terms of science or the Royal Society of London. And the Royal Society of London was was founded in 1660. And Isaac Newton became a fellow 1703 to 1727. Uh, he wasn't a founder of the Royal Society, but Newton was one of the earliest fellows of the Royal Society, elected in 1672. So he was the president of the Royal Society from 1703 to 1727. Now, Elias Ashmole comes from an older generation than Isaac Newton. He, he was uh, one of the founding fellows of the Royal Society, kind of, a, I guess, what you would describe as a male gold digger of the time, trying to wed wealthy, rich widows. He was also into restoring old texts as well. And one of his most famous old texts that he restored was a annotated compilation of alchemical poems in English. This book was released in 1652 called The Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum. Now, what we do know for sure about Ashmole is that he became a little bit obsessed with the Rosicrucians. He wasn't necessarily a practitioner in it once it sort of appeared on the scene in the early 1600s, he sort of became obsessed with sort of the folklore behind it because the Rosicrucians also had myths about themselves. And he was sort of trying to differentiate that. So Ashmole's writings are some of actually the best documents about alchemical traditions from the time, the time period of the 1600s that were happening in England and other places in Europe. I mean, he knew a lot of different types of science, geometry, an expert in mathematics, but he became mostly known as almost like a, a, chron a chronology expert, a historian, someone who was able to sort of wade through information. And in the book, The Magus of Freemasonry, the author says, Ashmole's reputation as a walking encyclopedia and man to be consulted and respected grew tremendously quickly after the publication of Theatricum Chemicum Britannicum. So pretty quickly, Ashmole's uh, reputation started to be known as a guy who had a very, very strong understanding of sort of these esoteric belief systems, alchemy. Word started to get around that he had a very strong interest in the Rosicrucian belief system. And at the time, a lot of people from high society actually wanted to know the secrets of Rosicrucianism because some of them were members, some of them were looking at it from the outside. This was actually very trendy at the time, and people were actually counting on Ashmole to sort of unearth the secrets of this. He had a lot of books dedicated to him even at the time, and, uh, and a book by Timothy and John Gadbury called Astronomical Tables. This book was also addressed to Elias Ashmole. And in their address to him, it actually sounds quite Masonic, what they say, which is interesting, because this is all pre-Freemasonry in terms of the speculative Freemasonry versus the actual Stoneworkers Guild Freemasonry. The address says, to the safeguard of the great architect of heaven and earth. So Ashmole never actually claimed to be a Rosicrucian, but since he had taken such a keen interest in it and he became sort of an expert in it over time, sort of decoding their occult belief systems and, and whatnot, 
people actually started to paint him with the taint of being a Rosicrucian. So here's this guy from the Royal Society who's sort of, his obsession became documenting these sort of popular things at the time. These were almost like, in some ways, this is like pop culture because this was happening at the time. Now, there's actually no evidence that Elias Ashmole knew Isaac Newton. And, you know, there's some argument to be made that the Royal Society had some cross-influence. These high-society, aristocratic, science-minded people probably had some influence over what masonry eventually became. Specifically, Ashmole's membership in the Royal Society does show a direct link between the very first historical record of speculative Freemasonry and the Royal Society. There are other connections, obviously, between the Royal Society and Newton's Circle and the people at Cambridge, the scientists, the scholars, with Rosicrucianism, occultism, and alchemy. Ezekiel Foxcroft, a fellow scholar of Isaac Newton's at Cambridge, is responsible for the first popular translation of what is said to be the third foundational Rosicrucian document. This document was called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosicruz. It was originally written in German. It was a highly, highly influential book. The three foundational Rosicrucian texts were very influential culturally, swept even the sort of academic intellectual scene. And the idea that these very serious scientists and academics were very interested in this occult and alchemical world is very evident. There is no historical dispute of that. Now, Elias Ashmole actually, in a very interesting way, provides this missing link between the stonemason guilds and the actual speculative Freemasonry of occultism. And not that the occult belief system comes from Elias Ashmole, but he might actually be one of the only people to document that earliest transition from one to the other. In his letters about becoming a Freemason and being initiated in it before the first meeting of the Grand Lodges in 1717 in England, in the late 1600s, Elias Ashmole actually describes being initiated into a Masonic Lodge. The very first documented recording of this ever happening in terms of speculative Freemasonry. Elias Ashmole, at the time, in the 1640s, was trying to court someone named Mrs. Mary Coachman. In Ashmole's own writings, he apparently did some kind of magical sigil to try to win her affection. At this time, Ashmole had moved on from his obsession with Rosicrucianism to now being obsessed with Kabbalah. His main object of affection actually decided to choose another husband. This destroyed Ashmole. He was devastated by this. He started to sort of lean into some of his esoteric works for guidance, the esoteric knowledge that he had accumulated. Most Masonic historians agree that the term accepted Freemasonry, new and accepted Freemasonry, was interchangeable with the later adjective speculative, which specifically refers to occult activity. And here is Elias Ashmole describing being part of a Masonic lodge of new and accepted Freemasons in 1646. 
Ilya says, I was made a Freemason at Warrington in Lancashire with Colonel Henry Mainwaring of Carinchcham in Cheshire. Forty years passed until Elias Ashmole would actually write again that he was still a member of the Masonic Lodge and the fraternity until the 1680s or through the 1680s. So 40 years. In 1682, Ashmole writes about Freemasonry again. He says, I received a summons to appear at a lodge to held the next day at Mason's Hall, London. And the next day he writes about his summons. He says, accordingly, I went, I was the senior fellow among them, it being 35 years since I was admitted. We all dined at the Half Moon Tavern in Cheapside at a noble dinner prepared at the charge of new accepted Masons. According to Wikipedia, these two journal entries by Ashmole are the earliest known references to Freemasonry in England. Now, these are the only references he ever made, even though some historians believe that Ashmole was actually working on a compendium of Freemasonic history. Now, the key thing to take away from there is his phrasing of new accepted Masons. This term, new accepted Masons, arguably is interchangeable with speculative Freemasonry of the occult. What Ashmole is revealing here is that possibly his keen interest in the occult, in Kabbalah, and Rosicrucianism led him to this secret fraternity of Freemasonry that at the time started to practice their own secret occult rituals that were not actually revealed to the public until about a hundred years later. It remained entirely secret. Now, just in terms of the ritualistic symbolism in Freemasonry, ancient architecture potentially represents an encoded message from God. The trowel, the apron, the gloves that Masons wear in their rituals are all related to stonemasonry work, the actual clothing that they would wear when they would do stonemasonry work. This attire and tools are still used in Masonic rituals today. Now we're going to move to the foundational parable of Freemasonry, which revolves around a character that they enhanced or retconned in the Bible named Hiram. And Masons call him Hiram Abiff. The man who had this secret knowledge of God and how to build this temple. The Freemasons invented a character and placed him in the Bible named Hiram Abiff, who directly took instruction from King Solomon, who got his instructions from God on how to build this magical temple. This is the fundamental, quote-unquote, secret at the center of Freemasonry's occultism, is this idea that they have somehow carried this knowledge since ancient times, since pre-biblical, that they are sort of the secret arbiters of this secret knowledge that was embedded in this magical divine object that is the most powerful physical object in the Bible. Freemason's main symbol is the letter G inside of a compass and a protractor, two sort of geometric tools. The G stands for God and geometry, the grand architect of the universe. Hiram Abiff would have been the builder who had the compass and protractor 
indirectly getting instructions from God via King Solomon, a.k.a. the grand architect of the universe. And essentially, Hiram was directly in the loop of one of Solomon's greatest magic tricks, the building of Solomon's temple. And Hiram had the knowledge potentially to reverse engineer this godly magic. That's sort of the underlying theme of this. And if you look at the symbolism this way, the separation of being a servant to God, merely a servant, versus taking what is already imbued with God and being able to wield its power or understand it by getting very close to it, is what differentiates Freemasonry so much from other organized religions throughout history. Now, what differentiated Isaac Newton and people of his sort of mindset from the time and people who were more sort of Catholic followers or followers of the church is that Newton on some level was embodying, which later became sort of a Masonic philosophy of, yes, God is real, but somehow you can get so close to God that you can actually learn God's secrets of the universe and almost become a God yourself imbued with this secret knowledge. This is a fundamental pinnacle to Freemasonry. It's that it's about the self-made man, the self-made independent thinker. It's sort of in its fundamental myths, and I'm not even talking about the hero of Abif myth, in its fundamental myths like in Tubalcane, there's a specific reason why they represent one of the Masonic figures as Tubalcane. Now, Ru- Rudolf Steiner, um, an, a writer from the turn of the century, uh, early 1900s, who was an admirer of the occult. I don't know how deeply he practiced it. I don't really know what his political ideas were. But Rudolf Steiner was not even a Freemason, but he understood Freemasonry better from the outside than almost any other writer from his time period did. The sort of the Freemasonic occult belief system did not come into view until the early 1700s, but it didn't have all this occultism and ideology at the center of it. Now, Rudolf Steiner, in his writings, this is from uh, 1904. It's a lecture of his, actually, and I think he put it in a book. Um, <laughs> I think it may... No, he gave... Apparently, he gave it in Berlin on the 2nd of December, 1904. So, that's what Steiner had to say. The basis for the whole of Freemasonry is to be found in the temple legend concerning Hiram Abiff about whom I have already spoken in the connection with the Rosicrucian order. Now, just pausing here for a second to say that Rudolf Steiner has concluded that Hiram Abif legend, as told by Freemasonry, largely comes from the teachings of the Rosicrucian order, which Rudolf Steiner draws a direct line from the mythology and folklore of the Rosicrucian order, which sprung up in the late 15th century, to Freemasonry in terms of their biblical myths. Steiner continues, Everything to do with what is called the secret of Freemasonry and its tendency is expressed in the temple legend. We are led to a kind of genesis or theory of evolution of the human race. Let us therefore recall to mind the essentials of this temple legend. One of Elohim united himself with Eve, and out of this union of a divine creative spirit with Eve, Cain was born. 
Then another of Elohim, Jehovah, and Odani created Adam, who is to be regarded as the primal man of the third root race. This Adam then united himself with Eve, and from this union Abel was born. Thus at the outset of human evolution, there are two starting points, Cain, the direct descendant of one of the Elohim with Eve, and Abel, who with the help of a divinely created human being, Adam, is the true representative of Jehovah. The whole conception underlying the creation story to the temple legend is based upon the fact that there is kind of an enmity between Jehovah and everything which is derived from the other Elohim and their descendants, the sons of fire. This being the designation of the descendants of Cain, according to the temple legend. Jehovah creates enmity between Cain and his race and Abel and his race. The outcome of this was that Cain slew Abel. This is the arch enmity which exists between those who receive their existence from the divine worlds and those who work out everything for themselves. The fact that Abel makes this sacrifice of an animal to Jehovah while Cain brings the fruits of the earth is an illustration which the Bible gives too of this contrast between the race of Cain and the race of Abel. Cain has to wrest from the earth with hard labor the fruits which are necessary for the sustenance of mankind. Abel takes what is already living, what has been prepared for his livelihood. The race of Cain creates, as it were, the living out of lifeless. Abel takes up what is already alive, what is already imbued with the breath of life. Abel's sacrifice is pleasing to God, but Cain's is not. Thus we find two kinds of human beings characterized in Cain and Abel. The one consists of those who accept what God has prepared for them. The others, the free humanity, are those who till the soil and labor to win living products out of what is lifeless. Those who regard themselves as sons of Cain are they who understand the temple legend and wish to live by it. Out of the race of Cain spring all those who are the creators of the arts and sciences of mankind. Tubal Cain, who is the first true architect and the god of smithies and working tools, and also Hiram of Abiff, or Adonhiram, who is the hero of the temple legend. This Hiram is sent for by King Solomon, famous for his wisdom, who belongs to the race of Abel, those who receive their wisdom from God. Thus his contrast appears once more at the court of Solomon. Solomon the wise, and Hiram the independent worker, who has achieved his wisdom through human striving. Solomon called to his court Balchus, the queen of Sheba, and when she arrived, her impression of him was of a statue made of gold and precious stones. It was though she were looking at a monument bestowed on mankind by the gods. As she gazed in wonderment at the great temple of Solomon, her desire was to meet the architect of this wonderful building, and her wish was fulfilled Merely through a single glance, which the architect cast on her, she was able to appreciate his true worth. Solomon was immediately seized by a kind of jealousy of Hiram. This grew as Balk demanded that all the workers engaged in the building of the temple should be presented to her. Solomon declared that this was impossible, but Hiram conceded to her wishes. He climbed onto a slight eminence, made the mystical sign of the Tao, and behold, all the workers streamed towards him. The will of the queen had been fulfilled. Because of this, Solomon is disinclined to oppose the enemies of Hiram and to stand out against them. A Syrian stonemason, a Phoenician carpenter, and a Jewish miner were antagonistic towards Hiram. These three fellow craftsmen 
had been totally denied the master word by Hiram Abiff. The master word as that which would have enabled them to work independently as master builders. The master word is a secret which is imparted only to those who have made the grade. Therefore, they came to the decision to do Hiram some harm. It should stop here and say Rudolf Steiner is actually giving you the backstory of the Hiram Abiff myth. He jumped from sort of talking about the Tubal Cain worship. Freemasons uh, have Tubal Cain as sort of an important figure. But now he is sort of explaining the non-biblical but the Masonic retelling of the Hiram story, which, again, is taken from a character named Hiram in the Bible, but it's not at all what Rudolf Steiner is about to tell you. This is all invented by Freemasons. The opportunity from this came about as Hiram Abiff was about to fulfill his masterpiece, the casting of the molten sea. The movement of the waters was to be held fast in form. The surging sea was to be preserved alive artistically in a rigid form. That is the point. The three apprentices conspired to make the casting in such a way that instead of flowing into the mold, it would flow out over the surroundings. Hiram tried to arrest the flow of the fiery mass by throwing water over it. But this caused the metal to spray up into the air and descend again with great force in a rain of fire. Hiram was powerless to do anything. But suddenly, a voice called out to him. Hiram! 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 He was ordered by the voice to plunge into the sea of fire. This he did, and he sank down even deeper until he reached the center of the earth where the fire had its origin. There he met two figures, his ancestor Tubal Cain and Cain himself. Cain was irradiated with the brightness of Lucifer, the angel of light. Then Tubal Cain gave Hiram his hammer, which had the magical property of restoring all their power and order, and he said to him, You will beget a son who will gather about him a race of wise folk, and you will be the progenitor of those who have been born out of fire, which brings wisdom and makes man thoughtful. The molten sea was now restored by means of the hammer. Hiram and Queen Balkis then met again outside the city. She became his wife. But Hiram was unable to avert the jealousy of Solomon and the revenge of the three fellow craftsmen. He was then slain by them. The only thing he was able to save was the triangle with the master word engraved upon it, which he threw into a deep well. Then Hiram was buried and a branch of acacia was planted on his grave. The acacia branch betrayed the whereabouts of the grave to Solomon, and the triangle was also discovered. It was sealed up and buried in a place known to only a few people, 27 in all. It was agreed that the new master word should be the first word uttered after finding the corpse. It is the word which is used by Freemasons. The Freemasons trace back their origin with some justification, to the temple legend and to the old days in which the temple was built by Solomon as a lasting memorial to the secret of the fifth root race. So, as you can see, Rudolf Steiner, even though he wasn't a Freemason, he has some deference and definitely some admiration for it. He actually even believes that there is some justification to attach their own mythos to it. I disagree with that. Uh, I think Freemasons are very, very clever people. Um, They're very good storytellers. They're probably some of the best in the world in terms of the people who wrote a lot of this lore. 
not many people have started a secret society based on retconning the Bible, except for actual religious offshoots that have like gained millions of followers across the world. So it's impressive that Masons are actually able to get so many people in, you know, sort of from Christian faith, from Jewish faith, even from Islamic faith, people of all these different faiths to accept the fact that they've essentially written fake characters into the Bible that were imbued with the secret knowledge of God. Now, Rudolf Steiner alleges that Masons derive their Hiram Abiff story from Rosicrucian, from Christian Rosencruz, the temple legend, that he believes that Christian Rosencruz is actually the origin of this. Now, there's definitely a lot of relationship to Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry. Rosicrucianism, culturally, definitely had a big influence on Freemasonry. But Freemasonry, I would say, is a little more science-leaning and is also more focused on the Old Testament than Rosicrucianism is. Rosicrucianism does a lot of retconning on the New Testament and on the disciples, but Freemasonry sort of ends up being influenced by a lot of things, but you can actually draw a direct line from, from Kabbalah practitioners, from Solomon's magic practitioners, and from the actual stoneworkers' guilds, the stonemasons, the free stonemasons. But what you cannot do, and that I think Rudolf Steiner's point of view is different than this, but you cannot draw a line from this to the actual story of the people who built King Solomon's temple or these secret stonemason guilds that go throughout history that even built the pyramids and all these other different famous pieces of ancient architecture. Now, Masons don't agree with Rudolf Steiner that the Hiram Abiff myth actually was inspired by Rosicrucianism and it comes from them. In fact, most Masonic historians are actually very unclear on where that myth actually was invented. The very first Masonic book released, the most popular one for public consumption by John Anderson in the 1730s, doesn't actually even describe the Hiram Abiff myth. So most Masonic historians actually think that it was invented at some point between 1730 and 1760. Regardless of some of my own disagreements and Masonic historians' disagreements with Rudolf Steiner's take, he still seems to have an incredibly deep understanding of what the rituals represent. And his description of the initiation ritual for the first degree of Masonry is uh, extremely well written. And I'm going to read the whole section for you because I have not seen a better description of this ritual. And I'm going to follow this reading with an actual clip from a public access TV show by a guy named John Ankerberg, who did a multi-part series on the actual inner workings of a Masonic Lodge. And this Masonic Lodge actually let him film the Hero of Abiff third degree initiation ritual. So Rudolf Steiner starts by saying... I will now describe to you the initiation ceremony of an apprentice wishing to join the order of craft masonry. Just imagine someone who has decided that he wants to become a member of the craft masonry. 
It consists of three degrees, apprentice, fellow craftsman, and master mason. After these three degrees come higher degrees, which lead the candidate into occult knowledge. I will now describe what happens to a novice about to be initiated into the first degree, the degree of apprentice. When he is brought into the lodge building for the first time, he is led into a remote chamber by the brother warden and left for some minutes to his own thoughts. Then he is deprived of all metal he has about him, such as gold, silver, and other metals. His clothes are rent at the knee, and the heel of his left shoe is trodden down. In this condition, he is led into the midst of the brethren who are assembled in another room. A cord is passed round his neck, and a sword is pointed at his naked breast. In this state, he is confronted by the worshipful master, who asks him if he is still determined to undergo initiation. Then he is cautioned very seriously, and during the further procedures, the meaning of the treading down of the heel and other procedures are explained to him. There are three things which he is obliged to forego. If he is unable to forswear these three things, he will never be accepted as a Freemason. He is told, if you retain the slightest curiosity about anything, then you must leave this house immediately. Secondly, he is told, if you should hesitate to acknowledge every one of your failings and mistakes, then you must leave this house immediately. Thirdly, if you are unable to rise in spirit above all things which differentiate one human being from another, then you must leave this house immediately. These three things are most strictly required from every candidate for initiation. Then a kind of frame is held in front of the candidate, through which he is thrown, while at the same time an unpleasant noise is produced, so that he flies through the frame with the worst of feelings. In addition to this, they shout at him that he is being thrown into hell. At the same instant, a trap door is closed with a bang, and he is given the impression of being in a very peculiar surrounding. His skin is then scratched slightly, so that blood is made to flow, and at the same time a gurgling sound is made by those around him, giving him the impression that he is losing a great deal of blood. After that, three hammer blows are struck by the worshipful master. What is said thereafter in the lodge must be treated in the strictest secrecy. Were the candidate to reveal it, his connection with Freemasonry would be changed, just as the drink he has offered also changes. Sweet from one side, bitter from the other. This drink is handed to him in an artfully constructed vessel, so that the drink is sweet from one side, but when it is turned around, changes to bitter. That is to symbolize how it will be for the candidate if he betrays the secrets. After these proceedings, he is led to a flight of stairs in a room which is very dimly lit. The staircase is so constructed that it moves and thereby gives the impression that one has descended a long way, whereas one has really only descended a short distance. It is the same when the candidate falls, when he thinks he has fallen into a deep well. He has in reality only fallen a very short way. At this point, it is explained to him that he has arrived at a decisive moment. In addition to this, he is blindfolded again when he is by the staircase. Then the brother warden is asked, Brother Senior Warden, deem you the candidate worthy of forming part of our society? If the answer is yes, he is then further asked, What do you ask for him? He is obliged to answer, Light. Then the bandage is removed from the candidate's eyes, and he sees himself in an illuminated chamber. Then follows the basic question, Do you recognize who is your master? He makes answer, Yes. It is he who is wearing a yellow jacket and blue trousers. 
The blue trousers refer to the rank he possesses. Then he receives the three attributes of apprenticeship, sign, grip, and word. The sign is a symbol of the same kind as occult symbols. The grip is a special kind of hand clasp to be used when shaking hands. These hand clasps are different in the case of an apprentice and in the case of a master. The word changes according to degree. It does not behoove me to reveal what the words are. Being a little cagey there, Rudolph. After that, the person concerned can be admitted to his apprenticeship. On admission, he is asked, how old are you? He makes answer, not yet seven years. He has to serve seven years as an apprentice before he can progress to become a journeyman. When someone has progressed so far that he is eligible for his master degree, the initiation ceremony is somewhat more difficult. The main thing is, however, that what is contained in the temple legend is actually carried out in practice on the candidate himself. He who wishes to attain the master's degree is led into one of the rooms in the lodge building and he has to lie in a coffin and undergo the same fate as the master builder Hiram suffered. Now, right now, I'm going to play for you an interesting public access show. It was aired in the United States, I think in like the early 90s or late 80s. And this TV show host actually got to go inside of a Masonic Lodge and film their Hiram Abiff third degree master initiation ritual which I will play for you right now. While the sun right now, in this portion of the ritual of the third degree of Freemasonry, the candidate has symbolically become Hiram Abiff. His walking around the altar symbolizes his journey through life, and he's hearing scripture from the book of Ecclesiastes. In a moment, the candidate will encounter ruffians on his journey who will threaten and eventually kill him. Grandmaster Hiram Abiff, I am glad to meet you thus alone. You have long promised us the secrets of a master mason. Behold, the temple is almost completed, and we have not yet received them. Give me the secrets of a master mason. This is an unusual way of manner of asking. Neither is it the time nor place. Wait until the temple is finished, and then, if worthy, you will receive the secrets. Give me the secrets of a master mason, or I will take your life. I cannot. Neither can they be given except in the presence of three. Solomon, king of Israel, Hiram, king of Tyre, and myself. Give me the secrets of a master mason, or I'll take your life upon this spot. My life, but not the secrets. Then die. Grandmaster Hiram Abif, give me the secrets of a master mason. I cannot. This neither is satisfactory. Give me the secrets of a master mason, or I'll take your life. I will not. Give me the secrets of a master mason or I'll take your life on this spot. My life, but not the secrets. Then die. Grandmaster Hiramovitz, give me the secrets of a master mason. I cannot. Give me the secrets of a master mason or I'll take your life. I will not. Give me the secrets of a master mason or I'll take your life on this spot. My life, but not the secrets. Then die. Companions, what horrid crime we had committed. We have murdered our grandmaster, Hiram Abif. What shall we do with the body? Let us take it a westerly course and bury it at the brow. So as you can see from that very bizarre clip that I just played you, that they essentially walk you through 
the parable of Hiram Abiff. So the parable, the foundational myth of Freemasonry, you act it out in the third degree initiation ritual. Rudolf Steiner describes what it's like to be a master Mason and how the language about yourself changes and how that's essentially when you become a sort of a real Mason. Rudolf Steiner says, the Freemasonry masters call themselves, quote, children of the widow. Now I must make note here that throughout history, one of the most infamous and well-known Masonic distress calls that you can actually say out loud or write down and a fellow Mason is supposed to help you, feels obliged to help you, is saying, is there no hope for the widow's son? Rudolf Steiner continues by saying, the task of Freemasonry is connected with that belonging to the whole of the fifth root race. You could, of course, from the point of view of modern rationalist thinking, dismiss all I have told you about the initiation of an apprentice and the various ceremonies connected therewith as more tomfoolery and play-acting. But that is not what it is. All the things I have mentioned are the outward, symbolical enactment of ancient occult practices which once took place on the astral plane through the mystery schools. Such proceedings, therefore, which take place symbolically among Freemasons, are carried out on the astral plane in the mystery temples. The initiation into the degree of a master, the lying in the coffin, and so on, is actually something which takes place on a higher level. However, in Freemasonry, it only takes place symbolically. So what Rudolf Steiner is elucidating there is that many, many Freemasonic practitioners probably just think they're just doing these fun, intense rituals that have some kind of symbolic meaning. What Rudolf Steiner is actually arguing is that every one of these enactments, these rites, these rituals actually serve a specific and ancient occult purpose that is having some kind of functional change occurring on the astral plane. It's not just that they have this Hiram Abiff origin story that's part of their initiation rituals, it's that they also believe that Masons as a whole, you know, all descended from Hiram, Hiram sect of stonemasons. And that this master word is the word of a master Mason today, like that the word itself was passed down from thousands and thousands of years ago. And that word, no surprise, is Tubalcane. Just, I, I know I've been really going on and on about the context for all this because it's really important to understand. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here too. Because did you know in American language, even in the Oxford Dictionary now, it's there, that the phrase squared away, yeah, let's get that squared away. That comes from Freemasonry. That is a Masonic term. Did you know that the term giving someone the third degree comes from Freemasonry as well. So these are things that we've heard since we were children. They just sound like colloquial phrases that have been around in the English language forever, but they come directly from Freemasonry. And that is a testament to how influential Freemasonry has been on not just American culture, but sort of the English speaking world as a whole just give you some context about what the colonial Americas were like 
a hundred years before the revolution. Actually, exactly a hundred years before the revolution. I highly recommend everybody who's listening to this podcast check out Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, 1492 to Present. It's one of the coolest books ever. I mean, as if you're interested in this podcast and you're a listener, you should have already read it by now. <laughs> I'm just going to read to you some pages throughout this podcast, but I'm just going to give you some context about what it was like in the colonial Americas in 1676. And this is from Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, page 39, chapter 3. Persons of mean and vile condition. In 1676, 70 years after Virginia was founded, 100 years before it supplied leadership for the American Revolution, that colony faced a rebellion of white frontiersmen, joined by slaves and servants, a rebellion so threatening that the governor had to flee the burning capital of Jamestown, and England decided to send a thousand soldiers across the Atlantic, hoping to maintain order among 40,000 colonists. This was Bacon's Rebellion. After the uprising was suppressed, its leader, Nathaniel Bacon, dead, and his associates hanged. Bacon's rebellion began with conflict over how to deal with the Indians, who were close by on the western frontier, constantly threatening. Whites who had been ignored when huge land grants around Jamestown were given away had gone west to fine land, and there they encountered Indians. Were those frontier Virginians resentful that the politicos and landed aristocrats who controlled the colony's government in Jamestown first pushed them westward into Indian territory and then seemed indecisive in fighting the Indians? This might explain the character of their rebellion, not easily classifiable as either anti-aristocrat or anti-Indian because it was both. Times were hard in 1676. Quote, there was genuine distress, genuine poverty. All contemporary sources speak of a great mass of people as living in severe economic straits, writes Wilcombe Washburn, who using British colonial records has done an exhaustive study of Bacon's Rebellion. It was a dry summer, ruining the corn crop, which was needed for food, and the tobacco crop needed for export. Governor Berkeley in his 70s wrote wearily about his situation. How miserable that man is that governs a people where six parts of seven, at least, are poor, indebted, discontented, and armed. His phrase, six parts of seven, suggests the existence of an upper class not so impoverished. In fact, there was such a class already developing in Virginia. Bacon himself came from this class, had a good bit of land, and was probably more enthusiastic about killing Indians than about redressing the grievances of the poor. But he became a symbol of mass resentment against the Virginia establishment and was elected in the spring of 1676 to the House of Burgesses. It was a complex chain of oppression in Virginia. The Indians were plundered by the white frontiersmen who were taxed and controlled by the Jamestown elite. So during this time period, this class disparity continued uh, for quite a while, pretty much for the next hundred years. As Howard Zinn also describes in his book, that's actually part of why the revolution was able to kick off. is because they were able to offer the promise of wealth and land to anybody who volunteered to fight in the Revolutionary Army. 
because there was a lot of poor people back then who didn't give a shit about England. Their troubles were way bigger than that. They were being exploited by American colonialists from this upper class. Many of them Freemasons, many of them just rich, many of them aristocrats. Just another example of how sort of destitute and horrifying some of the conditions were. I mean, think of America as a much more ghetto version of England at the time. If you weren't rich, if you weren't from a rich family, it was really fucking hard for most people. You could become a servant for someone. There were a lot of white servants at the time. And being in a servant class, it was just societally accepted for you to just totally be abused. Howard Zinn describes in his book, People's History of the United States, beatings and whippings were common. Servant women were raped. One observer testified, I have seen an observer beat a servant with a cane about the head till the blood was followed for a fault that is not worth speaking of. The Maryland court record showed many servant suicides. The master tried to completely control the sexual lives of the servants. It was in his economic interest to keep women servants from marrying or from having sexual relations because childbearing would interfere with work. Benjamin Franklin, writing as Poor Richard in 1736, gave advice to his readers, quote, Let thy maidservant be faithful, strong, and homely. Servants could not marry without permission, could be separated from their families, could be whipped for various offenses. Pennsylvania law in the 17th century said that marriage of servants without the consent of the masters shall be proceeded against as for adultery or fornication, and children shall be reputed as bastards. Although colonial laws existed to stop excesses against servants, they were not very well enforced. As you can see, Benjamin Franklin, one of the most influential writers during this time period of American history, is uh, saying, yeah, your maidservant shouldn't marry anyone because you should basically be able to have sex with her, a.k.a. rape her, because it wasn't treated as an equal human being in some of these colonies. So just to bridge this a little bit with the revolutionary time period and the Founding Fathers, during some of these sort of servant and actual genuine populist uprisings that were happening, for you know various understandable reasons, people were basically being abused by this ruling class the 10 percenters dominated the lower 90%. There wasn't even anything resembling a middle class. Howard Zinn goes into how British soldiers and companies of English soldiers started to be sent into the Virginias and to different colonies where they were these servant and populist uprisings to try to quell things. So that's sort of a hint as to what the founding fathers were actually able to use later as sort of a, a flashpoint situation to get sort of their agenda pushed through because the founding fathers were also part of the ruling class at the time. Howard Zinn talks about this bridge, you know, in between founding fathers in this time period, that in the Carolinas, the fundamental constitutions were written in the 1660s by John Locke, who was often considered the philosophical father of the founding fathers in the American system. Locke's constitution set up a feudal aristocracy, 
in which eight barons would own 40% of the colony's land, and only a baron could be governor. When the crown took direct control of North Carolina after a rebellion against the land arrangements, rich speculators seized half a million acres for themselves, monopolizing the good farming land near the coast. Poor people, desperate for land, squatted on bits of farmland and fought all through the pre-revolutionary time period against the landlord's attempts to collect rent. Carl Brindenbaugh's study of colonial cities, cities in the wilderness, reveals a clear-cut class system. He finds, The leaders of early Boston were gentlemen of considerable wealth who, in association with the clergy, eagerly sought to preserve in America the social arrangements of the mother country. By means of their control of trade and commerce, by their political domination of the inhabitants through church and town meeting, by careful marriage alliances among themselves, members of this little oligarchy laid the foundations for an aristocratic class in 17th century Boston. But to me, it doesn't really start to get interesting historically until you get into the American Revolution and the players in that. Because that was when the era of Freemasonry sort of fully embracing the occult and being basically an occult-ish secret society was really in full swing. It was in the mid to the late 1700s, during the time of the American Revolution. But I'll just tell you as a little bit of a backstory for now, just so you understand, so you can fill in some of these other blanks. So the first meeting of the Four Lodges, which was a a, a very, very pivotal event in Freemasonic history, happened in 1717. And between this time, more of a gentleman's club with occultish rituals. Probably one of the first really important things or pushbacks or rebellions against Freemasonry came in the form of what is referred to as the papal ban of Freemasonry, when the Catholic Church actually officially banned Freemasonry. Full stop. The Pope wrote about it, wrote about how it's not allowed. (laughs) This is actually declared along with other secret societies, not just Freemasonry, in 1738. So the Pope at the time in 1738 was Pope Clement XI. And he actually released a decree called In Eminenti Apostolatus. And it was considered the first canonical prohibition of Masonic associations. He wrote that members content with a form of natural virtue are associated with one another by oaths with grave penalties to conceal an inviolable silence whatever they secretly do together. To join these associations is precisely synonymous with incurring the taint of evil and infamy, for if they were not involved in evil doing, they would never be so averse to the light of publicity. Clement finishes by writing that these associations are not consistent with the provisions of either civil or canon law, since they harm both the peace of the civil state and the spiritual salvation of souls. There was kind of an inference that there was homosexual activity going on too. Potentially sexual, homosexual activity, debaucherous activity against God. And it wasn't until actually 
I don't know, a few decades later when it started to become a popular belief among certain Christians that it was actually a Luciferian secret society, that there were actual demonic aspects to Freemasonry. Now we get to the time period when Masonry in the United States was becoming very, very popular during colonial times. During colonial times in the 1700s, sort of wacky religious stuff was pretty prevalent. Very extreme forms of Christianity, puritanical Christianity, was very prevalent all around the country. Masonry was one of the only institutions at the time that was anything resembling atheism culturally. And Masons did not necessarily like to make a big deal about that. They didn't want people to think that they were somehow atheistic or even agnostic. The idea that believing in a supreme being or a god was a requirement for becoming a Mason uh, largely shielded them from sort of attacks from churches that they were trying to undermine religion. That did not become a bigger issue until later, as I was saying. Now, during the mid-1700s, around 1730 to 1750, the Masonic lodges in France and in England were much more aristocratic and high society. And in the United States, there were a little, let's just say, of a lower caliber. That actually started to evolve more to be a high society thing as sort of the founding fathers became more prominent fixtures in the United States and as we got closer to the revolution. From the 1730s to the 1750s, there were 13 Grand Lodges in the United States. Now, the Grand Lodge was usually the hierarchical top in terms of the chain of authority with the lower Masonic Lodges. So at this point in time, there were already over 100 Masonic Lodges all across the United States. And this number essentially doubled, continued to rise exponentially after the Revolution. And that number after the Revolution grew to 30 Grand Lodges in the United States. Two very prominent founding fathers, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, were both attracted to Freemasonry at a very early age. In around 1731, Benjamin Franklin writes in his own newspaper that Benjamin Franklin breaks the news in his own newspaper that Masonry is this mysterious secret society, something that most Americans hadn't even heard of before. Now, interestingly, after he sort of breaks this sort of article casting Masonry in this mysterious light in his own newspaper, he then joins Masonry the same year and writes an article, sort of an about-face, about his previous article, correcting some of the things that he said. Here's Benjamin Franklin's own words as printed in his newspaper after he became initiated as a Freemason in the Lodge. He says, In conclusion, I will but say that it has been to me a great pleasure and satisfaction to have discovered the additional original testimony regarding the antiquity of the first great lodge of Pennsylvania. But greatest of all is the feeling that, in presenting the communication to this right worshipful body, the new facts set forth go far to confirm, as it were, the plea so ably made 
by our late brother Clifford P. McCullough for Philadelphia as the mother city of Freemasonry in America. Benjamin Franklin was initiated into the local Masonic Lodge in Pennsylvania, and he became Grand Master of that lodge by 1734. Benjamin Franklin was only 24 years old at the time that he became a member of this lodge. And in only several years, after writing sort of an expose where he kind of shrouded masonry in this sort of mysterious allure, sort of casting it in a negative light, Benjamin Franklin became a revered Freemason in this three-year period, and the Pennsylvania Lodge charter was organized under his control. In the same year he became a Grand Master of the Pennsylvania Lodge, Franklin became the first person to ever release a Masonic book published in the Americas, a reprint of a book that was already published called Constitutions of the Freemasons by James Anderson. Franklin later then became the secretary of St. John's Lodge in Philadelphia from 1735 to 1738. So Benjamin Franklin is about 20 years older than George Washington. He's from sort of a different generation. Benjamin Franklin was born in 1706. George Washington was born in 1732. But their sort of worlds would obviously eventually collide in the revolution. And George Washington joined Freemasonry at an even younger age. George Washington uh, became a master mason uh, at the age of 21. It's not clear where he actually started as a mason, but he became a grand master of the Fredericksburg, Virginia Lodge Number 4 when he was 21 years old in 1753. Now, out of all the founding fathers, it needs to be said that Probably the two most devout and committed Freemasons out of them all were George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. However, in terms of the, man, the men's intellects, uh, there was really no comparison. Benjamin Franklin was a writer, a lecturer, an inventor, an artist, a musical instrument designer, a politician, a highly dedicated Freemason, and a man of the world who had connections to all these different important figures in Europe. The difference between both men is Benjamin Franklin never became president, never became vice president, even though he appears on the $100 bill. Benjamin Franklin's main dedication, his main passion in life after the revolution and how he continued to live out his life was one of a Freemason. Now keep in mind, most historians will say that the founding fathers were primarily deist. Deism at the time was this idea, it was sort of an intelligent design uh, idea that the Bible was not literal, that there was spiritual value in it, and that's why when you read writings of Jefferson and other founding fathers talking about Jesus and God, a lot of evangelicals and Christians have tried to take that out of context and say that the country was founded on Christian values. It cannot be more false to say that. Once you understand the full context of the spiritual beliefs and where the Founding Fathers are coming from, you realize that sort of the whole secular notion of the United States, freedom from religion, separation of church and state, very much appears to have come from the edicts of Freemasonry. There wasn't necessarily a large undercurrent in the Americas at the time to go against organized religion in general. 
So for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to make a clear line between the state and religion, one could argue that that is very much a Freemasonic belief that has had a profound impact on the United States since. This was later reinforced by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who commissioned a new design on the dollar bill when he was president of the United States in the 1930s, where he decided to put the phrase, a secular new order in Latin on the back of the dollar bill. Now this wasn't necessarily a Masonic phrase, but it embodies the Masonic ideals. A lot of people think this is overboard to talk about this these days, which is really bizarre to me because I don't remember learning about the Founding Fathers having slaves when I was a child. But it must be stated that Washington did acquire control over around 80 slaves uh, throughout his lifetime. It took a lot longer to adopt anything even remotely abolitionist in his belief system. If you think of Washington as the salt of the earth guy, you'd be incorrect. He's known as a military man, a military general, but he was actually the richest man in the United States at the time. And when he became president, he earned a salary of $25,000 a year, which is the equivalent of $728,000 a year in today's dollars. So that's actually even more than the president currently makes a year right now. It's almost a million dollars for the time. He also owned 50,000 acres of land. And during his lifetime, Washington mostly made his money and his wealth off of his own farm. He owned five farms that he had inherited from his family. His own plot of land, his own plantation, was 8,000 acres large. And he inherited his whole plantation from his family, including the 21-room mansion in Mount Vernon in 1761, about 15 years before the revolution. Now, Washington was an avid reader of the Bible, and a lot of people attribute this to his Quaker beliefs. But I'm going to tell you some things that will probably shed some different light on that and reveal that George Washington was actually quite an avid Freemason, and he got a lot of spiritual meaning from it. Now, some historians have tried to spin his plantation, Mount Vernon, as something where he just paid a bunch of slaves to not do anything in order to just support them at a, and actually operate at a loss. But the fact remains that Washington, for his entire lifetime on record, ended up owning 124 slaves, he leased 40, and held 153 total for his wife's dower interest, according to Wikipedia. Benjamin Franklin may be a little different. He had sort of a back and forth opinion about slavery. He claimed to be an abolitionist even before the Revolutionary War and he you know, promoted abolitionism even in 1774. But when people asked him to speak about the topic at the Constitutional Convention, 1787, he refused to. And he sort of flip-flop on the issue. And according to historians, Benjamin Franklin, over his lifetime, owned as many as seven slaves, including one that worked inside his house and, and sort of a, a shop assistant. Of course, Benjamin Franklin is considered a key sort of later Enlightenment figure, but because he was a scientist also in his inventions. 
Ben Franklin was sort of a child of the Enlightenment. He was influenced by the Royal Society. He was influenced by Isaac Newton, obviously. He was a prolific inventor. He was one of the first scientists to demonstrate the principles of electricity. You know, with his famous kite in a thunderstorm myth. But later he actually did come up with the concept of a lightning rod. And to demonstrate his ability to harness electricity, he made turkeys for a group of other researchers and scientists by killing these turkeys with electricity and then roasting them over an electric spit. He was also extremely influenced by Francis Bacon. Mozart was influenced by Benjamin Franklin and actually ended up composing several pieces for Benjamin Franklin's instrument that he invented called the Armonium, which was based on the concept of rubbing wet wine glasses to create musical tones. The instrument at the time would have been completely unobtainable by anyone of even modest means. It was an instrument that was only made for someone of very, very high means, is basically what I'm saying. Now, another disturbing thing about Benjamin Franklin that I I have to say for the record is that um, he also was an early practitioner of medicine, apparently. Now, this was already known about him, but it wasn't known about him until around 1998 that 1,200 fragments of human bones from at least 15 human skeletons were buried underneath Franklin's old London house. Six of the dead bodies, six of the skeletons were children. Now, historians say, well, he did have a protege named William Hooson who used parts of his lab and they had an anatomy school. So maybe these were Hooson's, you know, experiments and uh, obtaining bodies to practice on anatomy back then was, uh, was rather difficult to do. So you had to turn to grave robbing. So this is the historian explanation for why Benjamin Franklin has over 15 human bodies buried under his house is because that apparently people were grave robbing bodies for his anatomy school to practice anatomy on and they had to hide the bodies by burying them under the house. That's quite a crazy explanation and I don't know if I buy that but that's the historian consensus on why 15 human skeletons were found in Benjamin Franklin's basement in London. Now, the start of the Revolutionary War, you can really trace it back to one pivotal event that happened in 1770 on March 5th, where there was an apparent mob of people, colonialists, and British soldiers shot and killed uh, several of the people from this quote-unquote mob should also be stated by this time in history, in American history, Benjamin Franklin had already gained a reputation as a newspaper man, one of the innovators of the newspaper business in the colonies. He purchased the Pennsylvania Gazette in 1729, when he was only 23 years old. And you would think a 23-year-old guy who had just purchased his own newspaper wouldn't be that influential But the Boston Gazette was extremely influential. It was during an extremely influential time period. And Benjamin Franklin also published his own almanac called the Poor Richard's Almanac that he wrote under an alias named Poor Richard. And strangely, he also wrote 
everything under the Boston Gazette. When I say everything, I meant that he wrote everything under a pseudonym, including every single letter to the editor, which just seems like a truly insane motherfucking thing to do. In his newspapers and in his various pamphlets that he would write under all these different aliases, he would hype up the crimes of British soldiers, like raping the colonialists' wives when they weren't home. He also wrote influential papers on the freedom of the press. So he represented himself as this really intelligent guy who was for freedom and for fairness. All men are equal. But the type of shit he was doing with his own newspapers and his own media reach at the time would have been considered nowadays to be like full-on, extremely high-level, dirty trickster shit, like Matt Drudge-style Roger Stone style, Breitbart style. I mean, that's the level of muckraking. And that's what do you mean to call muckraking? It's just like total manipulation, propaganda that Ben Franklin was peddling in. Now, this gave him an incredible leg up and made him much more savvy of what you might call a propagandist during the revolutionary time period. Now, there were two other key so-called, if you want to call them propagandists, during this time period, they were Paul Revere and Samuel Adams. Imagine if Andy No or one of these sort of right-wing agitators went to a protest and what they would say about it, what they would say about what happened. Paul Revere and Samuel Adams were kind of like this at the time period. Now, I know that's quite an opinionated thing to say about these two men, but they turned this event into something of a of a pivotal moment, a spark. Now, at the time, news media propaganda was a lot more simple. All they had to do was just like release like a sentence or a caption underneath like a very detailed depiction of what happened. Paul Revere was responsible for being the origin behind this original illustration, which shows the British captain ordering his men to fire and also... British muskets being pointed out of a window of an official government building at the protesters. During this time period, there was a lot of mysterious pamphlets going around. Most people agree that they were anonymous. They don't know who printed them. But they were basically trying to inflame the situation. And this resulted in a very public trial at the time. Famous founding fathers John Adams sort of made a name for himself by representing uh, these eight British soldiers, in a trial on November 27, 1770. During the trial of the Boston Massacre, John Adams is actually quoted, transcribed during the court hearing, as saying that the crowd that the British soldiers were shooting at was a motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes and mulattoes, Irish teagues and outlandish jacktars. Now, I should stop here and say John Adams was not technically a Freemason. In fact, one of his children wrote vehemently against it later on in this story that I'm telling you. Howard Zinn's take on John Adams was that he was an aristocrat. And that's why you know, his actual real opinions came out during the Boston Massacre trial. So it is sort of ironic that he was so integral with the Founding Fathers Six of the British soldiers ended up being acquitted. So keep in mind that five years 
from this point is when the Revolutionary War actually started. Now, Howard Zinn, he makes a couple arguments. He argues, one, that Boston, at the time of the Boston Massacre, was sort of a boiling over of class anger. Now, at the time, the Boston Gazette uh, wasn't just reporting about how, you know, the British soldiers and the tyranny of the British soldiers. In 1763, there was actually an article ran in the Boston Gazette that a few persons in power, it said, were promoting political projects for keeping the people poor in order to make them humble. So this same newspaper that had blown up the Boston Massacre had been previously reporting that like Americans, not British soldiers and British parliamentarians, but Americans who were placed in power were actually intentionally keeping the people poor. So the idea that this being sort of a class struggle and not some kind of fuck you and your occupation of America, we don't, we're not going to stand for these, these lobster backs is sort of Howard Zinn's argument that it's not, was not primarily motivated by this idea of an occupying force. Now, this is also something that's come up recently because of all the BLM resurgence and all these street protests happening right now and, and sort of all the, and there's a lot of mainstream media also pushing this stuff too now, which is interesting, but I wouldn't trust sort of the disingenuousness of the mainstream media all of a sudden having an about face on the founding of this country being very dependent on slavery and the slave trade. But this cannot be ignored from the narrative. Not that long before the Revolutionary War kicked off, a very important court case took place called Somerset versus Stuart, also known as the Somerset case. So the English court in 1772 determined that a person on English soil may not be forcibly removed for the country. It was specifically about someone in England being sent to Jamaica for sale. This actually created a much broader sort of set of legislations that started to threaten the American slave trade by proxy. Because if England was already just starting to incrementally outlaw forms of slavery and the way that slaves were being traded, then it was going to very soon start to affect the United States. Now, the Somerset case was reported in detail by the American press. Because of the Somerset suit, a bunch of slaves actually filed freedom suits. The Somerset case in the United States made a lot of shockwaves. There is not, however, much documentation showing conspiring of the founding fathers that they needed to break away from English control because of this. However, it's undeniable that culturally at the time, it did send nervous shockwaves through the slave-owning community in the United States. This would take away a huge amount of their livelihood, and their dependence on slavery was so fundamental. England had a rich history. It had already been built over thousands of years. It's a culturally rich... America is new. It was brand new. Um, this is why there was such an abundance of slaves. They needed, they wanted to build up this country very quickly. They wanted to colonize it. So this cannot be factored out of the decision-making process of why there was such a fervor to break away from England. Because it doesn't actually add up the actual motivations in terms of wanting to be independent 
these different factors, these individual factors that I'm going to describe to you seem to make more sense. And it also makes more sense when you see that these people, these founding fathers, were already accumulating a large amount of influence and power, specifically someone like Ben Franklin, through the media, through his own writings, that these people maybe saw an opportunity that perhaps they could actually seize the power and start you know, something new, <laughs> possibly under the control of a belief system that they strongly believed made you a better person. Now, one edict of Freemasonry that I think is important to point out right here is that it's, again, it's important to remember that Freemasonry teaches independent thought. It teaches you that you can gain this secret spiritual knowledge if you keep climbing, if you keep seeking it. You can get closer to this actual secret hidden knowledge of God, the architect of the universe. This is a totally different point of view than most religious people at the time, that they were enslaved, they were servants of God. Masons had a very different point of view. And this could have played a role in why they wanted to break away from England and why they actually so strongly believed that their beliefs were, would somehow create a better society than the one that England envisioned for the Americas. Other than the obvious utter class disparity between the aristocratic class, which consisted of all these Freemasons, other than that, I mean, just the flip side of the Masonic belief system, if you want to think of the positive traits of it, you know, that they thought it would make you a better man, loyalty, honesty, integrity seeking knowledge, the flip side of the Masonic belief system that you can kind of see in the DNA of America, of the United States, is that you can become a God rather than being a servant to God. You can attain the knowledge of God and sort of become your own God. You can attain the secret knowledge from God. It's sort of like the end of Indiana Jones when Bullock looks into the Ark of the Covenant you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Indy instantly knows to close his eyes because it's not meant for humans to wield their control. The sort of whole mindset that embodies Freemasonry is actually also in the writings of Robert Kagan, where he talks about how the Founding Fathers did talk about this divine destiny of the United States being guided by God and entitled to work outside of its own borders that humanity was sort of its responsibility. Like how Adams said the United States is guided by the finger of God. It's sort of the empire baby syndrome that we talk about on Media Roots Radio exemplified this sort of brand new nation of ideas that really has no culture of its own, wiping the slate clean, utilizing Freemasonry as the backbone it's almost kind of like a Petri dish experiment that imbuing an actual population with an esoteric occultish belief system while at, the, while at the same time actually disguising it and sort of letting people practice their own religions and not really realize what this is behind all this, what actually is underneath this broader sort of populist language. 
it sort of has this eerie quality to it in and of itself. Like it's some kind of unintentional magic ritual that the founding fathers did to make us all blind, like Hiram Abiff wearing the blindfold, like Masonic initiates sort of trudging through the consumerism of American life, of American society, trying to find Solomon's magic without even realizing what we're looking for. We know that we're sort of trying to attain something because we've been told that we're the special society, that we're the best, we're exceptional. And we're trying to sort of find that Solomon's magic in the form of whatever that last dopamine rush is to keep us entertained. That last porn video that we watched or that last tweet notification that we got that made us excited or that last sugary meal that we had that's probably filled with processed ingredients that made us feel really good, but probably really awful for our body. This is another way that sort of Freemasonry at its core has this negative side that kind of toxified American culture, if you will, from its very beginnings. Like this ruling class, people who made up the founding fathers, the Sons of Liberty, these aristocrats like Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, George Washington, who joined them, these people seized an opportunity. And that opportunity really came with the sort of accelerationist act of the Boston Tea Party, which Freemasons take credit for being behind. And we were sort of taught in elementary school that the Boston Tea Party was the thing, right? That really kicked off the American Revolution. This is where a group called the Sons of Liberty sort of came into existence. So the, the actual story behind the tea tax and how it was imposed is a little complicated, so I can't break it down entirely. But it's not necessarily what you think it is. So the tea tax did not all of a sudden raise the prices of tea for the colonies and make it really expensive to buy tea, you know, if you were an American living in the American colonies uh, by the British government. In fact, what it did was it actually lowered the price of tea. So looking back on this sort of just as like a activist and someone who's in politics now, it's hard to understand how this could have been the spark of a populist uprising. It's actually easier to understand when you see that there were key players involved in this who were sort of utilizing these events and really politically motivated to do so to sort of spin them to their advantage to use as sort of a revolutionary wedge against England. And that, I believe, is sort of a more accurate way to look at this because there weren't thousands and thousands of people protesting the British government because of the tea tax. The term taxation without representation is not even maybe something that most people would have even understood at the time. It's still a little murky even today why that was such a big deal. Now, again, this is when Samuel Adams comes into the picture because Samuel Adams was one of the primary drivers of what eventually became the Boston Tea Party, the throwing of the tea. So what's interesting is there's actual no record of Samuel Adams being a Freemason necessarily as part of a lodge. However, he was the leader of the Sons of Liberty movement, which met on the floor of a building, a little two-story building, 
And the Sons of Liberty met in what was known as the Green Dragon Tavern, also known as the Brothers in Arms. The reason it was called the Brothers in Arms and it was its nickname is because this tavern was very well known as sort of an additional secret meeting place for Freemasons from the Masonic Lodge on the second floor, the St. Andrew's Lodge. Um, this is where a lot of Masons would cavort, would meet with people from the Sons of Liberty. And to this day, Masons strongly believe that the Green Dragon Tavern was the staging area for the Boston Tea Party, that the actual historical retelling of Samuel Adams playing the Boston Tea Party is actually false, that the real story took place in secret and was coordinated because of the secrecy and the oaths that Masons had with each other through Freemasonic lodges at the Green Dragon Tavern. There's a couple historical records showing this, that the Green Dragon Tavern itself, there was a famous watercolor portrait that was commissioned before the revolution that describes uh, what happened. And I'll read to you what the caption says. So this is a watercolor painting you can find on, online fairly easily. And it says, so the, the watercolor painting, it's like a little, I think it might be a charcoal drawing, I'm not sure, but it's the outside of the Green Dragon Tavern. And it says, where we met to plan the consignment of a few shiploads of tea, December 16th, 1773. This was a watercolor painting by John Johnston. And not much is known about John Johnston or who he is. But the fact that this watercolor painting actually predates the revolution is very fascinating because this actually lends credence to the stories Masons tell now about themselves being instrumental, not just in other pivotal events in the revolution I'm about to describe you, but the Tea Party itself, which is largely considered one of the main pivotal events that eventually kicked off the revolution. Masons have no illusions about being the ones responsible for that. They believe that the Sons of Liberty was merely an extension of this Freemasonic spirit at the time. Now, according to masonrytoday.com, it says, the Sons of Liberty was an organization formed in the years before the American Revolution. In August of 1765, the Sons of Liberty formed in Boston, Massachusetts to oppose and coordinate opposition to different taxes. The Sons of Liberty in Boston was largely made of Freemasons from the area. Although it was not a Masonic organization and did not have an exclusive Masonic membership, many of the leaders of the organization were Freemasons. A Masonic legend holds that the night of Boston Tea Party, St. Andrew's Lodge of Boston, which owned the Green Dragon Tavern meeting place of both the Lodge and the Sons of Liberty, had their regular meetings that night. In the minutes of the meeting, it allegedly states that the meeting was canceled due to lack of quorum, presumably that all the members were off dumping tea in the Boston Harbor. Now, this basically resulted in martial law in Massachusetts. But that's not the only thing that Masons like to tell about themselves in terms of their role in the American Revolution. And I need to mention again that Paul Revere was the one who made the engraving of sort of the most controversial picture of the Boston Massacre. And also be known that there's a little bit of, I don't know if you want to call it virtue signaling or maybe racializing it, but it's quite ironic that, you know, all these founding fathers and, and several of the people and the Sons of Liberty were definitely not anti-slavery, 
But yet Paul Revere's depiction of the Boston Massacre in the very center of the image shows a black man being murdered by a British soldier. That is the prominent, that's what your eye focuses on in the picture. So that's sort of fascinating too to think that Paul Revere, someone who wasn't an abolitionist, would show this imagery to try to provoke the American public. It's, it's a little bit confusing. In 1760, Paul Revere became a Freemason, and he later joined the Sons of Liberty. And I forgot to mention also that about 10 years before all this, there was the Stamp Act protest, where the Sons of Liberty sort of got their start, and they um, that was their first sort of major mark, where they trashed and tore down a bunch of like government offices, which sort of forced the parliament to withdraw the Stamp Act. Howard Zinn says in his book, Pauline Mayer, who studied the development of opposition to Britain in the decade before 1776, in her book From Resistance to Revolution, emphasizes the moderation of the leadership. And despite their desire for resistance, their emphasis on order and restraint, she notes, the officers and committee members of the Sons of Liberty were drawn almost entirely from the middle and upper classes of colonial society. In Newport, Rhode Island, for instance, the Sons of Liberty, according to a contemporary writer, contained some gentlemen of the first figure in town for opulence, sense, and politeness. In North Carolina, one of the wealthiest of the gentlemen and freeholders led the Sons of Liberty. Similarly, in Virginia and South Carolina, and New York's leaders, too, were involved in small but respectable independent business ventures. Their aim, however, was to broaden their organization to develop a mass base of wage earners. This is not spin. This is Howard Zinn looking at it through his lens of class and capitalism. These reasons are probably more palpable and more real than anything you've been taught in school about the American Revolution. So I'm going to continue reading this excellent book. Many of the Sons of Liberty groups declared, as in Milford, Connecticut, their greatest abhorrence of lawlessness, or as in Annapolis, opposed all riots of unlawful assemblies tending to the disturbance of the public tranquility. John Adams expressed the same fears. He said, These tarings and featherings, this breaking open houses by rude and insolent rabbles, in resentment for private wrongs or in pursuing of private prejudices and passions, must be discountenanced. Patrick Henry, which Howard Zinn describes as having this talent to be able to sort of bridge the rich and the poor and to make them feel that their fight against Britain was valid and to come together, she sort of describes his propaganda. Howard Zinn describes Patrick Henry's sort of orations in Virginia as, quote, a way to relieve class tension between upper and lower classes and form a bond against the British. This was to find language inspiring to all classes, specific enough in its listing of grievances to charge people with anger against the British, vague enough to avoid class conflict among the rebels, and stirring enough to build patriotic feeling for the resistance movement. Now, Patrick Henry wasn't a Freemason. There's no evidence that he was. But Thomas Paine, who was more influential, arguably, among the colonialists, with his pamphlets... He wasn't a speaker, he was a writer. Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, which appeared in early 1776, says Howard Zinn, became the most popular pamphlet in the American colonies. 
It made the first bold argument for independence in words that any fairly literate person can understand. Now, this is an extremely influential pamphlet. It sold over 100,000 copies during the time period. And Thomas Paine was also not part of a lodge or technically a Freemason, but Thomas Paine did later write a book on Freemasonry called The Origin of Freemasonry, which actually Masonic historians, most of them, when they've seen the book and tried to break it down, they've said that it's actually garbage and it's further evidence that Thomas Paine probably wasn't a Mason. But it's still interesting that these founding fathers were interested enough in Masonry, like Thomas Paine was, to write a book about it, which was actually published after his death in 1810. So there was definitely a bait and switch to a lot of this, where they made a lot of sort of the, you know, the rebels and the colonialists feel that this was a class struggle. But Howard Zinn says, once the revolution was underway, Payne more and more made it clear that he was not for the crowd action of lower class people, like those militia who in 1779 attacked the house of James Wilson. I can't remember the exact story that was told to me, and unfortunately I haven't been able to find it on the internet, but that second time I infiltrated a Masonic lodge, the story that the Mason, that the older gentleman, was most proudest of was the story of Paul Revere and how he believed, and I guess Masonic teachings had taught him, that Paul Revere was a devout Freemason without his fellow Masons, William Dawes and John Hancock, that he would not have been able to do what he did in terms of warning that the British were coming. On April 18th and 19th, that's the story of when Paul Revere was said to have told people that one if by land, two if by sea. Actually, I just found it. So take that back. So this is what's interesting. So a lot of the, you know, the, the British soldiers who were sort of in, involved in the colonies were, uh, were, were there to sort of possibly intercept Paul Revere on his ride back to warn the Sons of Liberty that the British were coming. And this is according to Masonic lore, is that apparently at Medford on his ride, Revere was briefly captured by a patrol of British soldiers. Some say he talked his way out of being arrested or shot, but Masonic folklore claims that he actually gave them a Masonic sign and was released by British soldiers who were also Masons. Revere managed to make it to Woburn, but Dawes was also detained. On April 19th, of course, with the shot heard around the world, which followed Paul Revere's famous ride. Hundreds of British troops set off from Boston towards Concord, Massachusetts. They did this when they got wind of the rebellion. At some point, someone fired a shot, they say. It's uncertain which side. It was a total shitstorm. And resulted in the deaths of a bunch of Americans and one British soldier. So this was the spark that set off the revolution. Howard Zinn calls this chapter a kind of revolution. This is the American victory over the British army was made possible by the existence of an already armed people. Just about every white male had a gun and could shoot. 
The revolutionary leadership distrusted the mobs of the poor, but they knew the revolution had no appeal to slaves and Indians. They would have to woo the armed white population. This was not easy. Yes, mechanics and sailors, some others, were incensed against the British, but general enthusiasm for the war was not strong. While much of the white male population went into military service at one time or another during the war, only a small fraction stayed. In Virginia, it seemed clear to the educated gentry that something needed to be done to persuade the lower orders to join the revolutionary cause, to deflect their anger against England. One Virginian wrote in his diary in the spring of 1774, The lower class of people here are in tumult. On account of reports from Boston, many of them expect to be pressed to compel to go fight the Britons. Around the time of the Stamp Act, a Virginia orator addressed the poor. Are not the gentlemen made of the same materials as the lowest and poorest among you? Listen to no doctrines, which they may tend to divide us, but let us go hand in hand as brothers. John Shy, in his study of the Revolutionary Army, says, They grew weary of being bullied by the local committees of safety, by corruption deputy assistant commissaries of supply, and by bands of ragged strangers with guns in their hands, calling themselves soldiers of the revolution. Shy estimates that perhaps a fifth of the population was actively treasonous. John Adams had estimated a third opposed, a third in support, a third neutral. Alexander Hamilton, an aide of George Washington, and an up-and-coming member of the new elite, wrote from his headquarters, quote, Our countrymen have all the folly of the ass and all the passiveness of the sheep. They are determined not to be free. If we are saved, France and Spain must save us. And lo and behold, that's actually exactly what happened. And how did that happen? How did we get, especially France, how did that happen? Such an important stepping stone to being able to win against England. Now, Benjamin Franklin's indoctrination into the Nine Sisters Lodge in France and him being responsible for initiating Voltaire, very big figure in the Enlightenment movement, into this lodge, sort of shed some light on how the highest society connections that Benjamin Franklin had in France. A lot of people have tried to tie Marquis de Lafayette, the general who ended up helping win the Revolutionary War, the French general, to this Freemasonic Lodge. He wasn't actually a part of it. But just the mere fact that Benjamin Franklin had these connections and that Marquis de Lafayette was later initiated into a lodge in the 1800s shows that he had an interest in Freemasonry. There's also other Masons who say that he was already initiated in a lodge prior to him arriving in the United States in 1779. So the Masonic version of the, the narrative is that Franklin ended up recruiting this French general through the Masons. They were able to do it sort of secretly through the Freemasonic lodges, almost using them like an intelligence network at the time. And that's how they were able to pressure the king, King Louis, into helping in the war effort against England. Another key general, pivotal to winning the Revolutionary War, was Major General Frederick William Steuben, also known as Baron von Steuben. Now, this was someone else that Benjamin Franklin was instrumental in recruiting as a diplomatic effort to win the war. Allegedly, he knew this man through Freemasonry. 
uh, Baron von Steuben was actually a very, very avid Freemason dedicated to the craft. And in fact, when he passed away, the 16,000 acres of land that he was granted as a reward for his role in the Revolutionary War, he built what he described as an estate that embraced the Enlightenment and the teachings of Freemasons. And actually, a lot of Steuben's property, which still stands today, has incorporated a lot of Masonic iconography. So the actual overlay of Baron von Steuben's property um, is similarly laid out, actually, to the sort of crosshatch compass and protractor designs and triangle designs of the Washington, D.C. city layout, which George Washington was in charge of designing. Now, how do we know Benjamin Franklin was an avid Freemason? Well, one of the reasons we know is because he's actually responsible for publishing the very first book about Freemasonry in the United States. The book is called The Constitutions of the Freemasons. It was released by Ben Franklin in 1734. It was originally written by James Anderson, and it was uh, reprinted in the United States by Ben Franklin in 1734. The reason this book was important is not just because it was published by Benjamin Franklin at the time. It was already a very influential character, but... It's also important because it was the very first Freemasonic book published in the United States, meant for public consumption at the time. There were already books published internally for Masonic lodges, rituals, and things like that. But this was the first book on Masonic history, which went through some of the actual Masonic lore. And it was already a very famous book, arguably probably the most famous book written um, by people associated with the Grand Lodge of England. Now, what did Franklin actually have to say about Freemasonry in his time? Well, a quote popped up of his in 1859 from the publication Freemasons Magazine and Masonic Mirror. So this is the earliest time that this quote popped up. It was attributed to worshipful brother Benjamin Franklin, in 1778. This is what Franklin had to say about masonry. He said, Freemasonry, I admit, has its secrets. It has secrets peculiar to itself. But of what do these principally consist? They consist of signs and tokens, which serve as testimonials of character and qualification which are conferred after due instruction and examination. They are of no small value. They speak a universal language and are a passport to the support and attention of the world. They cannot be lost so long as memory retains its power. Let the possessor of them be expatriated, shipwrecked, or imprisoned. Let him be stripped of everything he has in the world. Still, their credentials remain and are available for use, as circumstances may require. The good effects which they have produced are established by the unattestable facts of history. They have stayed the uplifted hand of the destroyer. They have subdued the rancor of malevolence and broken down the barrier of political animosity and sectarian alienation. On the battlefield, 
in the solitudes of the uncultivated forest or in the busy haunts of the crowded city, they have made men of the most hostile feelings and the most diversified conditions rush to the aid of each other with a special joy and satisfaction that they have been able to afford relief to a brother Mason. His mother was actually skeptical of it. She didn't care for it. And he explained his trust of Freemasons to her in a letter. He said, I assured her that they are in general a very harmless sort of people and have no principles or practices that are inconsistent with religion and good manners. Benjamin Franklin also talked about God a lot and referred to God as the Great Father, which is actually sort of resembling more the grand architect of the universe, the Masonic idea of God. Benjamin Franklin was actually the venerable master of the Nine Sisters Lodge in France from 1779 to 1781, and he was a member from 1706 all the way to 1790. Other famous members of this lodge included John Paul Jones, Voltaire, as I already mentioned. And of course, John Paul Jones was an integral naval commander in the Revolutionary War. So it wasn't just that one-third of the people who signed the Declaration of, the Ind- of Independence and the Constitution were Freemasons, or that George Washington or Franklin were Freemasons, is that some of these really integral roles during the Revolution were done by Freemasons. At the core of the diplomatic war effort was Benjamin Franklin's Masonic connections. At the core of the war propaganda effort was Freemasons with their influence over the media and their craft over the media, like Benjamin Franklin's experience running a newspaper and Paul Revere's extremely famous depictions using the Boston Massacre. At the core of the actual war effort itself was 50% of Washington's generals were Freemasons or related to Freemasonic lodges. And many of the key ones that helped Washington win the war were extremely dedicated to the craft of masonry. Ben Franklin, on some level, used his Freemasonic connections to do some of this sort of in secret, in stealth. And Freemasonry at this time represented aristocracy. There were no famous or well-known Freemasons at the time who were poor. If there is, I want somebody to produce a record of it and show me. This was an elitist gentleman's club that practiced the occult, where only its most educated members who understood the history and the occult and the lore of Freemasonry fully understood the power of King Solomon's Temple. Did George Washington fully understand this? Did Benjamin Franklin fully understand this? I would say that they probably did. Now, both Washington and Franklin, two of the most important founding fathers, died before the 1800s. Before Franklin died, he was the one who signed the peace treaty with England in 1783. He later attended the Constitutional Convention and reneged on his previous sort of promise to put abolitionist views on the platform. So if people want to make the argument that the founding fathers were torn about abolitionism or slavery, fine. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't as nuanced as these people were just completely inhuman monsters who, you know, looked at all black people at the time as total animals. 
there was probably some gradation, some nuance in the way that they saw things. But this was after the Revolutionary War, and that sort of proved that this was not really about populism. So of all the men that signed the Declaration of Independence who were Freemasons, I'll just go through a list really quick and tell you who was. That's proven on record. I'll just go down really quickly. William Ellery from Rhode Island, First Lodge of Boston, Benjamin Franklin, Pennsylvania, Grand Master of Pennsylvania Lodge, John Hancock, Merchant's Lodge Number 277 in Quebec, affiliated with St. Andrew's Lodge in Boston, 1762. Joseph Hughes, Unanimity Lodge Number 7, visited in 1776 and buried with Masonic funeral honors. William Hooper, North Carolina, member of Hanover Lodge in Masonboro, North Carolina. Thomas Jefferson, no evidence he was a Freemason. Even though Thomas Jefferson was a deist and probably respected the craft of Masonry to some degree, I don't think he had any ill will towards Freemasonry. But apparently he did step in as an honorary master of the Nine Sisters Lodge in France. Thomas Jefferson did become an American envoy to the Lodge as a non-Mason um, after Franklin left the post. Thomas McKeon, Delaware, 1781, visitor to Perseverance Lodge in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Robert Treat Payne, attended Massachusetts Grand Lodge in 1759. Richard Stockton, charter master of St. John's Lodge in Princeton, New Jersey, 1765. George Walton, Georgia, Solomon's Lodge Number 1 in Savannah, Georgia. William Whipple, St. John's Lodge, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, 1752. And in total, 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence, but only nine of them were Freemasons. During the entire Revolutionary War, Washington is on record in various different lodge minutes, meetings, and appearances. December 28, 1778, while in Philadelphia to raise money for the army, Washington attends the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania's Feast of St. John in 1779, June 24th, meeting at West Point, New York. The American Union Lodge's minutes records George Washington attending St. John's the Baptist celebration at the lodge. In 1779, December 27th, American Union Lodge records minutes of George Washington attending the St. John the Evangelist celebration at Morristown. Washington turns 50 in 1782, and apparently for his birthday, on his 50th birthday, he receives a letter with a fancy, very, very nice, custom-made silk Masonic apron from Elkanah Watson and Francis Corentine Colsell, a Frenchman, sent from France. This would later be the Masonic apron that George Washington would wear on 1793, while laying the Masonic cornerstone for the U.S. Capitol. Washington continued to attend Masonic events during the Revolutionary War. Later that year, in 1782, the Solomon's Lodge No. 1 of Poughkeepsie, New York, records Washington attending the Lodge of St. John the Evangelist celebration. In 1784, Marquis de Lafayette, after being 
diplomatically hustled to join into the Revolutionary War by Benjamin Franklin, apparently visits George Washington on his estate in Mount Vernon, and then he presents Washington with another Masonic apron as a special gift directly from him. Now, only 13 of the 39 people, the 39 delegates who ended up coming to the Constitutional Convention were Freemasons, but that's still a pretty large number. And the Constitution itself, the Bill of Rights itself, the Declaration of Independence itself, it has language in it that does feel Masonic. It's imbued with Masonic principles. And it's also hypocritical about its fellow man. It doesn't provide equal rights for women, or for blacks, or for Native Americans, or for people with not very much money. As Howard Zidd basically says in his book, it was just another way to shore up power by the ruling class in the colonies to take down one tyranny, the British crown, and replace it with another. Now, it was at this time that Benjamin Franklin was in France continuing his diplomatic efforts, and he was heavily participating in the French aristocracy and the Nine Sisters Lodge activities, and there was many tales of his debauchery while over there. He finally asked to come home from his diplomatic post and arrive back in the United States in 1785. Now, George Washington, during the Revolutionary War time period, he was becoming more and more of a heroic figure among Masons and in Masonic lodges around the country. Revered hero, a war hero, and a revered Mason. He was being granted honorary worshipful master and headmaster status by the very virtue of who he represented to the Masons as an American. Washington accepted for the most part these invitations as honorary Mason of all these different lodges around the country, but this also eventually gained him a reputation of being arguably the most powerful Freemason in the world. And as a result, having to answer eventually for his association for this mysterious secret society, the people were already increasingly starting to fear. And this became even more of a topic of controversy for the colonialists who disliked the British crown, but also disliked the aristocracy. When Washington, on April 30th, took the oath of office as president of the United States by placing his hand on a Bible. Well, that doesn't seem that controversial, right? I mean, he was, after a Christian, a Quaker, right? Well, no. George Washington deliberately wanted to use a Masonic Bible, and he is famously depicted placing his hand on this Masonic Bible. George Washington was deliberately placing Freemasonry in the foundational history of the founding of the United States. It wasn't an incidental afterthought. Now we're reaching the end of part one of my Masonic history lesson. And just so you fully understand how dedicated George Washington was to the craft, to the spiritual belief system of Freemasonry, I'm going to tell you the story of George Washington performing a very public and extremely historically important Masonic occult ritual as the foundation for the nation's capital.
And by that, I mean it literally because it was a cornerstone laying ceremony where they laid the first stone in the first foundation for the U.S. Capitol building. And out of all the events I just told you having to do with the founding fathers and the American Revolution involving Freemasonry, this event, the actual cornerstone laying ceremony that was performed by George Washington wearing full Masonic garb and a Masonic apron and he himself participating in an occult ritual that went beyond just laying of a stone, which I'll explain in a second. This was possibly the most Masonic aspect of the founding of the United States. And it was done in a religious-like Masonic ceremony where these people genuinely believed they were arbiters of a new sort of religion that was being divinely guided that these founding fathers were being guided somehow by God. George Washington had already tasked the help of several architects and city planners. One of them, the French designer Pierre L'Enfant, who was a Freemason. And according to a lot of Freemasons, not all of them agree, Pierre L'Enfant was actually tasked by George Washington to make the actual city layout itself the shape of a triangle as a symbol for geometry influenced by Freemasonry. Later, Pierre L'Enfant was tasked to design the Capitol building and the rest of the main monuments in Washington, D.C. in the shape of a compass and a protractor with many triangles in its overall design. Again, specifically designed after Freemasonic symbolism. Now, there's a lot of debate within Freemasonry if this is actually the case, if it is a compass and protractor. But I ask you, after listening to this podcast, to look at an aerial map of Washington, D.C. and look at the Capitol building and the White House and the different monuments and tell me that it actually doesn't look very Masonic in some way. Now, whether it's just triangles or whether it's an actual compass and protractor, you'll have to decide for yourself after looking at it. But that gets more attention than the cornerstone laying ceremony that I think is a much more important symbolic gesture and much more important evidence that the foundation of the United States was derived from not just Masonic principles, but also was intertwined directly with Masonic occultism. The United States Capitol Cornerstone Lane was the ceremonial placement of the cornerstone of the United States Capitol on September 18, 1793. The cornerstone was laid by President of the United States, George Washington, assisted by the Grand Master of Maryland, Joseph Clark, in a Masonic ritual. At 10 a.m., on September 18th, now President George Washington, who had taken his presidential oath of office on a Masonic Bible, with his entourage, crossed the Potomac River to arrive in the city of Washington. There, they were joined by an escort consisting of the Alexandria Volunteer Artillery and members of the Masonic Lodges from Virginia and Maryland, and proceeded to the construction grounds approximately 
1.5 miles away. At the site of the Capitol, Washington was received by Joseph Clark, the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Maryland. A silver plaque fashioned by Georgetown silversmith Caleb Bentley was handed to Washington, who stepped into the foundation trench and placed the plaque whereupon the cornerstone was lowered. The plaque was inscribed with a brief tribute to the, quote, military valor and prudence of Washington and dedicated the building in the first year of the second term of the presidency of George Washington and in the year of masonry, 5,793. Now, I just want you to sort of close your eyes and picture this scene for a second of George Washington wearing a powdered wig, you know, this tall man sitting in the foundation, sort of standing in the foundation with the cornerstone being lowered and all these other masons sort of standing outside of this hole. Imagine George Washington in full Masonic garb carrying several items under his arm and wearing an apron. George Washington accompanied by three worshipful masters carrying sacrifices of corn, wine, and oil. Washington took these items from the three worshipful masters. First the corn, placed it on the stone, then the wine, poured the wine on the stone on top of the corn, and then took the oil and poured that oil on top of the wine and the corn, then struck the stone three times with a gavel as prescribed by Masonic custom. George Washington then exited the trench to ritual chanting by the assembled Masons in a 15-gun salute, one gun for each U.S. state, from the Alexandria Volunteer Artillery. Clark then delivered a short invocation after which a 500-pound ox was slaughtered and roasted. Now, of course, word got around about the ceremony. Word got around about George Washington putting his hand on the Masonic Bible. And over the years, after he retired from the presidency, after he moved back to Mount Vernon, his plantation, with over 100 slaves, and after he had accumulated so much money that he was the richest man in the country, George Washington got into the habit of letter writing and apparently writing back to complete strangers. And these rumors about Freemasonry had been swirling more and more as it got closer to the 1800s, as we actually get closer to the anti-Masonic movement in the United States, which started in the 1820s. And the Illuminati became a topic of controversy. And George Washington sort of encountered a guy who was uh, trying to pill George Washington on the conspiracies behind Freemasonry and the Illuminati. George Washington was once asked in 1798 about his associations with Freemasonry. The Illuminati was a real group that apparently was 
was partially responsible for uprisings and coups, and it started to get a nefarious reputation. And people, of course, naturally compared it to Freemasonry, because it was extremely similar. Now, a man named George Snyder wrote to George Washington in 1789, August 22nd to be exact. George Snyder, who was a reverend, writing from Fredericktown, Maryland, says to George Washington in his letter, You will, I hope, not think it a presumption in a stranger, whose name perhaps never reached your ears, to address himself to you, the commanding general of a great nation. It was some time since that a book fell into my hands, entitled Proofs of a Conspiracy by John Robinson which gives a full account of a society of Freemasons that distinguishes itself by a name of Illuminati, whose plan is to overturn all government and all religion, even natural, and who endeavor to eradicate every idea of a supreme being and distinguish man from beast by his shape only. A thought suggested itself to me that some of the lodges in the United States might have caught the infection and might cooperate with the Illuminati or the Jacobin Club in France. Fauché is mentioned by Robinson as a zealous member. They use the same expressions and are generally men of no religion. Upon serious reflection, I was led to think that it might be within your power to prevent the horrid plan from corrupting the brethren of the English Lodge over which you preside. I send you proof of a conspiracy, which, I doubt not, will give you satisfaction and afford you matter for a train of ideas. If, however, you have already pursued the book, it will not, I trust, be disagreeable to you that I have presumed to address you with this letter and the book accompanying it. May the supreme ruler of all things continue you long with us in these perilous times. May he endow you with the strength and wisdom to save our country in the threatening storms and gathering clouds of factions and commotions. So as you can see, this Reverend G.W. Snyder was trying to pill George Washington. It's kind of got a cue. It's trying to pill him. And even though the Illuminati actually was founded after Freemasons and was actually inspired by Freemasonry in Bavaria by Adam Weishaupt in 1776, there wasn't really any truth to the idea that Freemasonry was some kind of secret Illuminati plot. There was some truth to the idea of what this reverend was saying that it was trying to dismantle organized religion on some level. That's what masonry aims to do. But that's not really the argument that the Reverend was saying. He was basing this off of a more hysterical religious conspiracy book from the time about Freemasonry that was arguably one of the most popular anti-masonry books published at the time period by this author that he's referring to named John Robinson. Now, what Washington does here, instead of actually taking the time to explain to the guy in a reasonable way what masonry is and how it's not harmful, what Washington does is a classic dodge in his response to this reverend, who, interestingly, was just a stranger to Washington, and Washington, I guess, would reply to strangers in written letter form. George Washington replies... A month later, on September 25th, Sir, many apologies are due to you for my not acknowledging the receipt of your obliging favor. 
and for not thanking you at an earlier period for the book you had the goodness to send me. I have heard much of the nefarious and dangerous plan and doctrines of the Illuminati, but never saw the book until you were pleased to send it to me. The same causes which have prevented my acknowledging the receipt of your letter have prevented me reading the book. Namely, the multiplicity of matters which pressed upon me before, and the debilitated state in which I was left after, a severe fever had been removed, and which allows me to add little more now than thanks for your kind wishes and favorable sentiments, except to correct an error you have run into of my presiding over the English lodges in this country. Now I'm just going to comment right there that George Washington was actually being asked about his associations with these secret societies to correct an error you have run into of my presiding over the English lodges in this country. The fact is, I preside over none, nor have I been in one more than once or twice within the last 30 years. Well, that's a complete lie. I just told you like five or six different times that he just was hopping around different Masonic lodges and parties during the Revolutionary War. It must have been important enough to do it during the actual war. Continuing, Washington says, I believe notwithstanding that none of the lodges in this country are contaminated with the principles ascribed to the Society of the Illuminati. G.W. Snyder responded, well, actually didn't respond. He got a little impatient. He didn't realize that George Washington had already responded to his letter. So he fired off another letter to George Washington on October 1st, right after George Washington sent his letter. And G.W. Snyder, a reverend, started out his new letter to Washington saying, Some weeks ago I sent you a letter with Robinson's proof of a conspiracy, which I hope you have received. I have since been more confirmed in the ideas I had suggested to you concerning an order of men who in Germany have distinguished themselves by the names of Illuminati, German Union, reading societies, and in France by that of the Jacobine Club, and that the same are now existing in the United States. His letter continues on, but it's quite rambly and actually just quite QAnon-y, religious-y. But George Washington's starting to get a little irritated at this point. You can kind of tell. And he responds on October 10th, nine days later, Sir, it is more than a fortnight since I acknowledged the receipt of your first letter. On the subject of the Illuminati, and thanked you for Robinson's account of that society, and went to the post office as usual, addressed to the Reverend Mr. Snyder and Fredericktown, Maryland. If it had not been received before this mishap, must have attended it, of which I pray you to advise me, as it could not have been received at the date of your last, not being mentioned. I am George Washington. So, after a little bit of niceties by G.W. Snyder and his response to George Washington to that letter on October 17th, which, at this point, frankly, if I was G.W. Snyder and I was trying to pill someone and I knew what I knew from that book, I'm sure that on some level he had to have known that George Washington was kind of being evasive. Let's put it mildly. I mean, this is the man who did swear in on a Masonic Bible, who made no secret about his Masonic affiliations, 
who was an honorary master at all of these lodges, and who did seem to preside over the so-called Lodge of England, which was Freemasonry in the United States. So G.W. Snyder is actually, for a rambly religious reverend, he's quite patient with George Washington. And he says, When I consider the anarchical and seditious spirit that shoot itself in the United States from the time M. Genet and Fauché arrived in this country and propagated their seditious doctrines, which the illuminated doctor from Birmingham has been zealously employed to strengthen, I confess I cannot divest myself of my suspicions. Yet I trust that the all-wise and omnipotent ruler of the universe will so dispose of the minds of the people of these United States that true religion and righteous government may remain the privileges of this nation. I cannot conclude without acquainting your excellency that I have made extracts from Robinson's proof of a conspiracy and arranged them in such a manner as to give a compendious information to the public of the dangerous and pernicious plan of the Illuminati or Jacobins, and by some remarks to caution them against it. Should your excellency have leisure to pursue the piece, I shall deem it a peculiar favor to receive your opinion on it. His tone's a little more heated. Maybe, maybe for the time that would have read as a little more heated and intense. And maybe a little more threatening, too, that he's thinking that Washington somehow provides over these lodges and he's threatening to blow them open somehow. George Washington responded on October 24th, and this was his final word to the Reverend. Kind of a passive-aggressive shutdown, if you will. A preemptive ghosting. George Washington says, Reverend, Sir, I have your favor of the 17th before me. My only motive to trouble you with the receipt of this letter is to explain and correct a mistake which I perceive the hurry in which I am obliged often to write letters have led you into. It was not my intention to doubt that the doctrines of the Illuminati and principles of Jacobinism had not spread in the United States. On the contrary, no one is more fully satisfied of this fact than I am. The idea I meant to convey was that I did not believe that the Lodge of Freemasons in this country had, as societies, endeavored to propagate the diabolical tenets of the first, or the pernicious principles of the latter, if they are susceptible of separation, that individuals of them may have done it, and that the founder or instrument employed to found the democratic societies in the United States may have had these objects and actually had a separation of the people from their government in view is too evident to be questioned. My occupations are such that but little leisure has allowed me to read newspapers or books of any kind. The reading of letters and preparing answers absorb much of my time. With respect, I remain Reverend, Sir, your most obedient, humble servant, George Washington. So he's basically saying, okay, now I'm not going to read this fucking book. Blow up in Freemasonry. You fucking nut job. There's a little bit of disdain there because George Washington knows that on some level Freemasonry is an occult practice and that it was at the heart of the foundation of the United States, not just the ideals, but also the aesthetics 
and the course that the United States was set on. And also the people, the sort of aristocratic, high-class, rich, well-off people who were all Freemasons. He just didn't want to have to explain this. And he also didn't want to have to explain the sort of religious contradictions of how he can be a Quaker or a Christian when Masonic rituals have things that threaten you under the penalty of death if you reveal secrets. That's sort of the antithesis of, you know, modern Catholic and Christian teachings for this time period. That was considered sacrilegious. That was considered anti-Christian. And Washington really does a good job of not having to explain anything at all having to do with the Freemasonry. He just throws the Illuminati under the bus because it's easy to, because it's kind of just a crappy clone of Freemasonry that apparently was behind some real coups, you know, as Freemasonry was apparently behind. Freemasonry apparently had an integral role to play in the French Revolution as well and in the American Revolution. But what Washington is doing, essentially, in that first response to him is he's saying that he hasn't been to a lodge more than like two or three times in the last 30 years, as if he's not considered one of the most powerful Freemasons in the world at the time. And that's why this priest, this reverend is contacting him. Not just because he was president of the United States, but because of his standing with, among Freemasons. And Washington wasn't a dumb person, so it's interesting that he didn't think that he could easily explain to someone like a reverend, who was an in- intelligent guy, this guy wasn't a total crazy person, He didn't think he could explain to him in a way that this reverend could understand. And he instead decides to just lie for convenience and obscure his association with Freemasonry in the historical record. But he was very, very proud of being a Freemason in other ways. He was very public about it in other ways. The Cornerstone Lane ceremony, for example, was very public. So this sort of reveals the contradiction in the founding of the United States imbued with these Masonic principles and Masonic aesthetics. It kind of actually reminds me a little bit of the Q stuff. It's sort of like a branding campaign, under the radar, sort of whisper campaign. But when it comes down to actually being asked about it and bringing it to light, showing it as some kind of reflection of what Washington represented... Washington would rather just obscure it and keep it hidden and disassociate himself from Freemasonry, even though he was a very, very proud, dedicated Freemason. He was dedicated to the craft. Now, if you go to Washington, D.C. today, you can see this Masonic aesthetic represented heavily in Washington, D.C. You don't have to be familiar with the triangle shape of the city that Washington specifically asked for. You don't have to be familiar with the positioning of the buildings that are apparently supposed to represent Masonic initiation rites, depending on which order you walk to them in, the monuments in the National Mall, in the Capitol. It's not because the whole layout of the Capitol building, the White House and the National Mall, is a compass and a protractor, allegedly according to Washington's requests. It's not because of those things. It's actually just because of the opulent temple-like nature 
of many of the government buildings in Washington, D.C. The Supreme Court, the Capitol building, there is a religious holy-like quality to Washington, D.C. It feels different than the old British Parliament buildings or royalty of the medieval times or really any royalty during that time period. It had a different Masonic quality. These buildings were designed like in the style of biblical Jewish temples, not Roman temples, not Greek temples. Now, if you go to Washington, D.C., there actually is no Washington Monument in terms of a monument specifically to George Washington. There is something called the Washington Monument, which is also very, very Masonic, which we will go into in part two. But there wasn't an actual monument built specifically for George Washington that embodied his Masonic heritage until 1932. It's called the George Washington Masonic National Memorial. And it's a pretty cool building that's in the style of a Alexandria lighthouse in Egypt. And this was a proper monument to George Washington and embodies the Masonic aesthetic, the reference to the Egyptian architecture, the protractor and compass cement patio design in front, a giant protractor and compass with the letter G inside, and the beautiful bronze statue of George Washington in the middle of this opulent, what appears to be a Masonic temple inside. This is actually privately owned by various Freemasonic private interests. Now, this monument doesn't really get remembered as sort of the official monument commemorating George Washington. There's a much more famous monument that does, Mount Rushmore, which is built around the same time. Mount Rushmore was completed in 1939 and had the faces of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln carved into a beautiful mountainside called the Six Grandfathers that was revered by Native American tribes. And the guy who designed it was actually a Ku Klux Klan member named Gutzon Borglum who hired a bunch of stonecutters low-wage workers working at slave wages to work on this thing for years at a time. It took over 12 years for them to finish the president's faces, and they originally were going to make the whole upper waist of the president's bodies. But the irony of this is that in the final monument to George Washington, and probably the last final opulent monument, grand monument, that maybe was even inspired by the Freemasons of old, but it depicted George Washington's face. The sad irony of this is that around 30 stonecutters and sculptors who worked on Mount Rushmore during its construction ended up dying of lung disease from the dust they inhaled from the mountainside that they carved. Not only did American colonialists rape and pillage the new land and sort of 
zap it and drain it of its natural resources and beauty and start building upon it and industrializing it. The Freemasons, who believed they were special, they believed they were sort of led by the divine spirit, the founding fathers, who happened to be these aristocratic Freemasons, set up a legacy and set up a, an American system and sort of a, a set of ideals, they put those in motion, that eventually built a monument to them where they killed people who are part of the original ancient craft of stone cutting that apparently the cult or the secret society that they revere and respect apparently originates from, the craft of stone masonry. So Mount Rushmore and the actual Washington Masonic Monument in Washington, D.C., they sort of juxtapose two different sides of George Washington, kind of perfectly, actually. The one side of him being the richest man in the country at the time. I mean, if you look at his net worth, he's right under Donald Trump in terms of the richest person ever to become president of the United States. The slave owner, this person who probably helped kill hundreds of thousands of Native Americans and who passed horrible laws that stifled the rights of black people, Native Americans. This oligarch, essentially, who inherited everything from his family, who never really had to work a day in his life, who had to invent a myth about himself chopping down a cherry tree so that people thought that he was an honest person. Mount Rushmore represents that side of George Washington, sort of the dark side of the United States. The arrogant side, the side that, you know, believes in this selfish destiny, this ego-driven quest to attain more and more knowledge you know, what are you left with? Just an ugly, half-finished sculpture done by a Ku Klux Klan guy who died before he can even finish making it that looks like shit. It looks like absolute shit, and it ruined a beautiful mountainside. You know, it's, you're never going to get that back. You can't ever repair that or fix that. It looks like fucking shit. Look at an aerial view of Mount Rushmore. Look at one that's sort of like shot from a copter up above. You'll see how much like it looks like shit. The reason all the pictures of it are from down below is because that's one of the only angles it actually even looks remotely decent from. You can still see the giant pile of rocks and scrap that they left over though that's just right up against the hillside. It's a total mess. And to think it would have been even a more garish mess if they had their full bodies in there. What a disgusting monument but also a perfect monument to sort of represent America in a way. Now, the Lighthouse of Alexandria represents something else. It's considered one of the first lighthouses to guide someone when they're lost, you know, to guide ships at, sh at sea through the fog. That's sort of how they're trying to represent George Washington, as someone who guided people through the fog guided colonialists through the fog. They're sort of trying to represent that good side of George Washington. But in reality, it was still a manipulative and dishonest side 
And as you can see, he still couldn't even acknowledge that he was part of this aristocratic occult society to a reverend that was messaging him at the end of his life and taking the trouble to, to mail him letters. But then again, he was a president. I'm sure he did have better things to do. I probably would I probably wouldn't read a whole book a stranger sent me who was trying to pill me. But hey, that's just me. So thank you everybody for listening to part one of my history lesson, my Masonic history lesson of the United States. I'm really excited for you to check out part two of my Masonic history lesson of the United States, which goes through a lot of different events. Some of them you probably already know about, some of them you don't. It goes to the death of William Morgan, a man who was threatening to release Masonic secrets in New York in the early 1800s. It goes to the Anti-Masonic Party, and how it was the first third party in the United States that came about as a result of the mysterious disappearance and or death of William Morgan. I also go through how Joseph Smith was a avid Freemason dedicated to the craft starting his own religion called Mormonism, which stole in droves from Freemasonry, not just their aesthetics, but also their rituals, and revolves around the worship in a temple and aspects of King Solomon's temple. I go through Albert Pike's definitive Masonic publication during the second wave of American Masonry called Morals and Dogmas, and how he played an interesting role in American politics, serving as a general in the Civil War fighting on the southern side. I also go through masonry during the Spanish-American War and the Mexican War, and what masonry was like culturally in the early 1900s and in the 1800s. What was it like during World War I? What was it like during World War II? I also examine the idea of baseball one of America's most popular sports and something that defined American culture in the early 1900s, I also examine if baseball is actually influenced by Freemasonry. And I also go into America's continuing fascination with the occult and secret societies and how other societies like Crowleyism and Scientology stole a bunch from Freemasonry. So thank you so much for Tune in to Media Roots Radio for my Masonic History lesson and get ready for part two, which will be coming out in the month of August as another bonus episode. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And thank you so much for being a Patreon subscriber to Media Roots Radio. Take care.
Tonight I thought that you might like to see what goes on behind closed doors in a Masonic Lodge room. And we're actually going to recreate for you some of the ceremony, the ritual, in the Blue Lodge, the first three degrees of Masonry.